Uh, Vincent, this is actually such an important thing to do. There are, there are so many people that are going to watch this um, mm -hmm. that, I, I, that I think will then carry the information that you provide um, outward for the betterment. Uh, there's Good. so much misunderstanding right now yes. around this subject. Thank you for being here. Oh, that's the other thing that's been amazing in, in the course of this pandemic. So much misinformation. People just don't know where to get good information. They hear it in the wrong places, mostly mainstream media, right? We get. Well, and, and I'm, so I'm sure um, I will just share to tee things up. We, we shouldn't go into this maybe yet, but I, I, just, I just came from somewhere and um, a gentleman <laughs> there was asking me basically what I thought about the vaccine and saying that some of his friends had told him that they weren't going to get it because they didn't want to have microchips injected into their butts. <laughs> <laughs> There's no microchips involved, folks. Come on, get your virology from a virologist. That's you know, don't here. listen to your friend. I'm available. <laughs> you can you can hear me anytime, and me and my colleagues, we're all virologists, and we'll tell you the truth. He doesn't uh, work for Bill Gates either. He's just yeah, I don't work right. for anybody actually. I work for Columbia University. I don't take money from any pharmaceutical company. I have no skin in the game. Okay, I just want you to be healthy, and I want you to be educated. That's my goal in life. I'm already pumped. That that was awesome. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm talking about that's actually i think that's actually a really good place to start like that uh because i, I don't think we've ever talked about that, that you're basically unaffiliated you do your research through university you don't take i think a lot of yeah. people imagine virologists take like these giant corporate uh payment packages or things you know yeah yeah no, no. people assume that i'm a shill for for big pharma hey folks i wish i was because i'm poor and uh well not poor but i, I don't get money from any pharmaceutical company and uh, I do this. I have, I'm a university professor. I love teaching. I do research. Uh, we get our lab funded by the National Institutes of Health, and that all goes to the lab. So I am telling you things to keep you safe and to keep you educated. No other reason. I'm not, uh, that, you know, we have to do disclosure statements when we give talks. And my disclosure slide, I have nothing to disclose. My podcast, I don't make any money on. We, we we just survive on donations to pay for the expenses. So I'm doing this because I love truth. I love science, okay? Yeah, I, I think that comes through very clear when I look at your content that you do on YouTube. I've been watching, I watched your entire uh, Twiz podcast with the other three virologists on the vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought it was, it was fascinating. I, I was, uh, it really helped me. And I've recommended it several times to my community. Um, just to just to get as a as a basis to just get informed on right. what this is. I, I think one of the number one misunderstandings is short term and long term effects of of vaccines, and I also think that um, entwined in that is like a lack of understanding of just like how much this has been tested. So start with a statement of basic fact: there are now two vaccines for COVID nineteen. One of them um, has been out a few days. The other one, I think from Moderna is, uh, was approved yesterday or today. So Vincent, maybe you can clarify. So, so tomorrow, December 17th, the FDA will have a hearing, just like it had last week for the Pfizer vaccine. Remember, it's all day, it's televised, you can watch it, streamed, I should say. And uh, tomorrow they'll do the same for Moderna. It's, ex it's anticipated that on Friday, the FDA will issue an emergency use authorization. That's not the same as approving the vaccine, okay? It means that in EUA, you can only use it in certain situations and you can't sell it to hospitals and anyone else who wants it yet. That will happen next year. So okay. by Monday, we will have two vaccines 
with EUAs in the US. And already the Pfizer vaccine, which was rolled out last week, approved last week, you know, many, many doses have been shipped to various states. And as you've seen, probably people are getting the first immunizations. Healthcare workers are the first ones to get it, right? Because they're constantly in the face of the virus. And that makes perfect sense. Uh, and then uh, as the mod and, you know, we have millions of doses available this year, maybe up to 50 million from those two companies. And then, uh, but that's obviously not enough to no. immunize the U.S. We need two doses of each of those vaccines. So we're going to need more. They can make more next year, but we still need more. And other vaccines are in the pipeline. We anticipate having maybe six vaccines in the U.S. Uh, licensed or given EUAs next year. And uh, maybe by the end of the year, everybody in the U.S. can be vaccinated. That's the plan. But so you, you believe, this is an important question, you mm -hmm. believe that to get everyone in the United States vaccinated, and by the way, for those of you who didn't see our previous shows with Vincent last spring, his predictions on both the vaccine timeline and a fall spike, which he made last April and May, that those things would happen, have been pretty accurate. You believe right. it'll be about a year before we would have enough vaccine to get to every person in the U.S.? I think so, yeah. And um, these companies have to ramp up production. That's not easy. The uh, technology in making these two vaccines in particular, these the Pfizer and the Moderna, they are mRNA vaccines, brand new technology, never been made before in, in any sizable number of doses. So they've already made, you know, 100 million doses and they have to make hundreds of millions more. And, and actually they want to make billions of doses because they want to serve the rest of the world or yeah. parts of the rest of the world as well, right? Which is important. So this is a remarkable thing that's happening here. I have to say at the beginning of this, we didn't know if any of these would work. We had and no you touched idea. On, you touched on something interesting. It's a little bit wonky policy or, or science piece, but this type of vaccine, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, are using a, an approach that has never been used in a major vaccine before. Is that right? And that's right. mRNA vaccines have never been used in human vaccines before. Uh, they have been very limited, had very limited testing before in humans. But in January, Pfizer and Moderna said, we're going to make an mRNA vaccine against this virus. And they started working on it in January. And then, you know, a few months later, they started putting them in people. They've gone through three phases of the clinical trials, right? Phase one, two, and three. All phases involve safety. And, and the second and third, all three phases involving how the vaccine makes an immune response. And the last phase, of course, how well they protect you against disease. And right. It's just, to me, I am actually stunned at how this has gone well. It's, you couldn't have planned it better. Those two vaccines really went well. And, you know, there have been some uh, trouble with some of the other vaccines, things, mistakes made and so forth. We can talk about those. So it's not easy to get things perfectly well. So, and so this is amazing. My understanding of the vaccine is that it creates a, it creates the spike protein that attaches to cells, elicits an immune That's response right. without it, without actually injecting any of the dead virus into the cell. That's right. Oh, yeah. Let me show you a picture. Can I do that? Yeah. Wow. That's sure. amazing. Look how prepared he is. I'm yeah. a teacher. I'm a teacher. Yeah, I want uh, you guys to get this. Oh my God. Okay. So so that's the virus, right? That is a, a, an EM there on the left. 
and the diagram on the right. So you can see the spike, that big spike protein. Uh, that's uh, the way the virus attaches to cells. And most of the vaccines are making some kind of spike, either the protein or the mRNA, as you said. And so for the two, the two vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, they're making um, an mRNA, which codes for the spike. Mm-hmm. And that allows the um, uh, the cell will actually make spike for you. I, I, I have some other pictures I can show you that uh, really illustrate this very nicely. Let's see. I, I do a lot of teaching online, so I have these things always queued up because it's uh, something you can always do. This is what the spike looks like. So here again, we have this the, on the left of this slide, the virus is attaching to cells. And you see that's a cell there with the receptor on the surface. And that spike is doing that. And on the right is the actual structure of the spike, which it's three-dimensional structure. This is what it looks like. That's what the protein looks like. And so the vaccine makes takes an mRNA encoding the spike. So uh, on the left there, there's how you make the mRNA. You take a DNA copy of this, of this spike mRNA. You put it in a test tube along with an enzyme called T7 RNA polymerase. And the enzyme will make tons and tons of copies of the mRNA for spike. And this is a kind of technology that we always use in my lab. We do it all the time. We make small amounts of RNA, mRNA. We make like millionths of of a gram. And they have to make kilograms of mRNA to to immunize, you know, hundreds of millions of people. You said 50, right? Approximately 50 kilograms of... Yeah, because everybody gets 200 micrograms, you know, a millionth of a gram. And then they wrap this up in a lipid coat, which is shown on the right. It's called a lipid nanoparticle. And that is injected into you. So it's a piece of RNA. There's more than one RNA in that lipid coat. And the lipid coat protects it because RNA is pretty fragile. It would break up. And uh, that's injected into your muscle. And I think here is what happens when it's put in your muscle. So there on the left, it's it's, uh, injected in your muscle, in your shoulder muscle. And what happens is those mRNAs, those uh, lipid nanoparticles go to the lymph nodes in your armpit, right? And the, those are the closest lymph nodes to the uh, to the shoulder. And the lymph nodes are where immune reactions start. And that RNA is taken up into immune cells that are called antigen-presenting cells. The protein is made, and then those drive antibody and, and T-cell responses in, in the uh, muscle. And these mRNA vaccines have been shown to be really good at doing that. They do a great job at in making antibodies and T cells. And as we have seen, um, they also protect. They have over 90% efficacy in protecting against disease. All right. Now, that is a really important uh, thing which we have to get into here, but we'll get into it a bit later. But these two vaccines, mRNA vaccines, again, Brand new technology, just developed in the last few years. A big risk. We didn't know if they would work. They work like gangbusters, <laughs> over 90% protection. And these, if we could get this to everyone, these would knock down this pandemic. Of course, wow. we have other vaccines too, so that's really good. So that's how they work. And they've been tested for safety and efficacy, which means preventing disease, as I said. And there's nothing like this. There's nothing like this. is a new paradigm, I think. I think we're going to be using this for a lot of other viruses and even diseases when you need to deliver a protein to a person. You could do this. <clears throat> so you, do you believe that this has changed, uh, vac- this has changed virology forever? The, 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 the discover, discover, discovery 
and the stable use of this in humans in such a rapid period of time has accelerated yes. virology on other fields. We may be able to cure other viruses that we haven't been Absolutely. able to before. So that Moderna already has HIV and herpes virus vaccines, mRNA vaccines in their pipeline. Are you serious? This, this is what we have to try for wow. almost everything. I mean, it's, now, it's not going to work for everything, but Why? it is. Look how quickly they could ramp it up because yeah. all you need is the gene sequence from the virus, mm -hmm. right, which we got in January. And this guy who was uh, reading a story about it, a guy sat down at his computer on a Saturday and cranked out the mRNA and said, here, let's make this. <laughs> So basically, that's the rest of the year has been safety testing that. That's that's what it comes down to safety, and it's safety been proving first, it. right. So first, they took sixty people and they, they healthy people stick it in their arms, see if there's any issues, right? Mm. And then they do this phase two is does it make antibodies and an immune response? <clears throat> they do that with more people and they continue to do safety. And then phase three is the final one where they give it to that tens of thousands of people. Each company has done 30, 40,000 people, and you split them one, half get the vaccine, half get a placebo, right? So you can compare the two. And then they send you out in the world and they tell you, tell us when you feel sick. <laughs> and when you feel sick, which means, you know, cough, uh, temperature, the typical signs of COVID, they have you take a, a nasal swab, you mail it to them, they confirm it. And then they eventually they say, are you in the control or the vaccine group? And you know most of the illness was in the control group mm -hmm. of all the cases that they've looked at so far. So both companies, and again, independently made mRNA vaccines, very similar results. So I, I just am very enthusiastic about this. And I'm very skeptical. If you listen to Twiv, you know I'm very skeptical about things and I, yeah. I want really good data. I, I think for less than a year, this is stupendous. It's just stupendous. One of your colleagues called it a triumph of modern medicine. Quite literally said that word for word. I think this is true. And yeah. you know what's mm -hmm. the cool part? You know, I showed you that slide of how you make the mRNA. That was just done in a lab years ago by somebody who thought it would be cool to do it. He wasn't thinking about making a vaccine or, or any therapeutic product. He said, well, this would be fun to do because we could use mRNA. And now it turns out to be uh, really useful. So the mor the moral is, I like to tell this, is that you get good scientists, you give them money, and you let them play, right? How many yeah. fields is that important in? Just let them play and let them follow their curiosity, and good things will happen. And, and is from... that is that why we didn't figure out mRNA before? Is that we just didn't have funding slash interest in it, and now we have the entire world focusing on a problem? And well, you know, there have been traditional vaccines like you know polio vaccines. They're, they're viruses that we modify or inactivate. Yeah. They're flu vaccines, the same thing. And then maybe 20 years ago, people said, hey, you know, we could make DNA vaccines, right? Where you take this DNA encoding the, the spike, say, and just inject it into people. So they tried that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there's even a West Nile vaccine for horses. That's a DNA vaccine. They just inject G DNA into your muscle. But when they tried that in people, it never worked really well. It didn't give good immune responses. And so people kind of have forgotten about DNA vaccines. And then five years ago, you know, someone said, well, what about mRNA? So the problem with RNA is if you just stick RNA into your muscle, it's going to go away in, in minutes. Mm. It's very sensitive. The key was wrapping it up in lipids, right? Making a lipid nanoparticle in it. And so these companies have played around with formulations for a couple of years, and that protects it. And that's the key. Cells like to take up that those particles, and then the mRNA gets in them, and boom, you get protein. That's so, so cool. 
Wow. Uh, you know, it's the thing, let people play, right? Let them investigate. That's what scientists do. <laughs> that, so th this really has the potential to, to actually, uh, so many, so many problems in the world are a result of viruses uh, rogue viruses. I mean, I'm thinking already you just discussed yeah. HIV. Um, there's eight different strains of herpes that affect over 80% of the uh, human population. I mean, these are, these are enormous yeah. implications, what you're saying right now. This could change the no, world forever. I think that this is a very quick way to check out if you can make a vaccine for those viruses. It's much easier to make than many other types of vaccines that we are making. I mean, many people are doing that for SARS-CoV-2. They're trying all the other different yeah. kinds of vaccines, right? But I think this is just so easy this to is, do. This is amazing that no one, Devin, you've hit on something huge. No one has talked about. No one's talked uh, about I haven't yeah. heard until I heard from Vincent. Yeah, same. The, the applicability of this technology, which is now being proven out at mass scale, mass safety across many countries, many companies, could be used for all these other human diseases. If that's true, this could be a space age event where you're, you're releasing a new set of technology like ARPANET or DARPANET creating the internet. You know, COVID creates the vaccine wave of the future for diseases right now we consider untreatable. Yeah, no, that's that a good be... point because, you know, if not for the pandemic, maybe we wouldn't have tried this for many years, right? Yeah. And who knows? But this has pushed us. This pushed us to do it really right away and quickly. And I think that's the defining movement. And now, yes, it's possible going forward, we'll have many more vaccines based on this. And it all started, you know, in 2020 with the COVID pandemic. So, so taking a quick step back to hit the basics, first, without um, too much detail, what is mRNA? So many people at least have heard of RNA and DNA. RNA is the messenger in cells. Mm -hmm. But can you give a layman's view of what mRNA, this type of vaccine means? What's the M? So in our cells, as everybody knows, you know, our genes are made of DNA, right? So they, they code for us. It's Twitch, not everyone knows that. <laughs> Right? Knows that. Well, they, they can all know it. They can but, go to 23andMe. We are I, not sponsored, I, I, but maybe I, we I should have been. I appreciate your confidence in our audience. It's good. <laughs> but, but, you know, DNA is in the nucleus of the cell, and it's in the cytoplasm that proteins are made, right? So the DNA never leaves the nucleus. It stays in there. So how do you make proteins in the cytoplasm? Well, it's the messenger, right? That's why it's called messenger RNA, because it, mRNA is made in the nucleus by copying DNA. And then it goes out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm of the cell, and and then the, it is made into protein. It's copied by what we call ribosomes, these little factories that make protein. And that's why it's called mRNA, messenger RNA, because when it was first discovered, they said, ah, this is the messenger between the DNA and mm. the cytoplasm of Got the it. cell. So the M is messenger. Okay. M is messenger, yes. And so, you know, when, when they start, when they talk about mRNA vaccines, it makes me very happy because people are forced to say something scientific, right? mRNA, <laughs> they like that very much. Mm -hmm. And so we learned years ago how to make mRNA in a test tube. As I said, I showed you that picture of how you can make it from a DNA uh, using an, a purified enzyme. And guess what? That enzyme that I told you that's used to make mRNA. So that's what Pfizer, that's what Moderna are using. They, they have this enzyme that they can make in huge quantities. That's from another virus. It's from a bacteriophage, like that bacteriophage sitting on my my shelf there, that spaceship-looking yeah, uh, thing. Mm -hmm. They purified the, the enzyme from that virus to make these mRNAs because you can do it cheaply and in huge quantities uh, that you need.
Uh, are it's there, amazing. Are there any meaningful differences between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine? Does it matter which one you get? It's a good question. People are yeah, going to want to know. Yeah. It's a good question. So they're almost the same. The mRNA is exactly the same, and it codes for the same protein. The only difference is the lipid coat around the two. Pfizer's and Moderna's are different. And you know this is a proprietary thing, so we, we don't know exactly. But what it means, you know, in terms of efficacy of the vaccine, they're both in the 90th percentile. So if you said to me, uh, would you take either one? I'd say, sure. Either one, as far as I can tell, is fine. The only difference is the storage conditions. The Pfizer vaccine has to be maintained very cold temperatures, minus 70 degrees Celsius. Now, I do Celsius, folks. I don't do Fahrenheit. Oh, so you, fig you just type it in your, your thing there, and you can figure it out. Guys, what is that in freedom units, please? It's it's almost minus a hundred. Jesus. Yes. It's almost yeah. It's 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 cold. It's really cold. So your freezer doesn't go down that far. Okay. Your freezer does zero. <laughs> no. right? Zero Fahrenheit. Um, uh, zero zero Celsius, which is what uh, thirty two Fahrenheit. Right. Mm. So that's a problem because how do you ship it? So Pfizer has developed these these boxes that you fill with dry ice. So dry ice is frozen carbon dioxide it comes in these pellets you can buy and they stay really cold until they they sublimate right they go from the frozen state to a gas and so they ship this vaccine and then wherever it gets it has to be kept cold there are freezers that do minus 70 celsius we have some uh, in my lab but you know most uh, doctors offices don't have these freezers so you're going to have to keep it frozen until you use it and you know it's not easy to get dry ice everywhere, right? I'm sure there's some parts of the world where it's hard to get. So the transport of Pfizer is a little dicey. Although I have a suspicion that, you know, the first hundred million doses are going to be used as soon as they arrive at their destination. So why does this need to be kept so cold? What what like it it must decay instantly yeah, the, and any kind of heat stabilizes. Those, those, yeah. yeah, those lipid mm -hmm. nanoparticles just decay mm -hmm. at higher temperatures. And but so, you're going to inject them into a person who's uh 98.6 or whatever so they're they're going to go right. from minus 100 fahrenheit so right. we'll, we'll use your from minus 70 to plus 37 in celsius mm -hmm. but right. they they're going to be active long enough to protect me despite yeah so in the in the body they will last about two days and what the, the key is as soon as they're injected they go to your lymph nodes in your armpit right mm -hmm. and the lymph nodes take them up and they get into cells and and now they're not going to degrade anymore. Actually, the cell is going to take off the lipid and just start making protein from the mRNA. So what it, oh, way it works, okay. So the, the vials, lipid won't matter. Lipid doesn't matter. The vials have five doses, right? So they're going to thaw them out. And I, I think they'll give immediately five shots yeah. easily, right? Because yeah, so, yeah, sure. so many people want this. So it's not going to sit around very much. Now, in Moderna, on the other hand, they say it will last in a refrigerator for two days, mm. in fact. And it will last at freezer temperatures, you know, 32F, uh, for a couple of weeks, actually. So theirs has a different storage requirement, which is nice. So that's the only difference, as far as I can tell. And it makes no difference for efficacy that is protecting you against disease. It's just that if you keep it, say, at room temperature for a day, it's probably not going to be a good idea. You have to inject it right away, the, the both vaccines, in fact. So that's the difference. Otherwise, they're exactly the same. Yeah. So... One more sort of lead up question, and then I think uh, people are going to going to want to hear a lot about safety. 
But just really quickly, uh, this was me playing dumb a little bit on purpose. Um, what exactly is a vaccine? Is it a cure? So if I have COVID and you give me this, will I become well? No, a vaccine is uh, a preventative. It's a, it's a therapeutic. It will prevent infections, but it will not cure. Uh, there, with one exception, all the vaccines have to be given ahead of when you're infected. The exception is the rabies, rabies vaccine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The only vaccine where you can get it after you've uh, been bitten and acquire the virus, you have a couple of weeks, actually. So die. it takes about two weeks to get an, an immune response. And it takes that long for the virus to get into your brain from wherever the dog bites you mm -hmm. or bat or whatever. So that's the only one. But other vaccines have to be given ahead of time before you are infected. They will not help you once you are infected. The um, This vaccine requiring two doses, um, something that I actually don't know, and, and I think it's just so simple that it might just have escaped everybody. Um, these are not two sets. This is two doses of the same vaccine. So you don't That's need right. you, you don't in some vaccines you need you need to get an injection and then get an injection of another different type of uh, mm -hmm. yeah a booster that's different but this is a booster that's really interesting because I have a follow up question as to why the the yeah. so that's right with yeah. both mm -hmm. the mRNA vaccines you get two of the same exact vaccine, same exact shot two, two weeks two weeks which apart. makes logistics yeah. a lot easier because then you don't have to yeah say okay well you're you're on number two. But that's interesting. I wonder why people have such an immune response to the second one and not the first. Uh, yeah, I've read control, that, that, that people are getting drugs. their butts kicked by number two yeah. from a sort well, of that's side effect. When you first inject, the body's never seen it before. It takes some time to make the antibodies and make the cells. But once they're made, we have them forever. We have memory, right? So those cells are already, the cells that make the antibodies are in your body now. There are already a lot of them that are specific for the spike protein. And so when you get the second shot, there are an immediate reaction and much more intense than the first one because mm. it's a memory recall. It's a memory recall. And that in turn is making even more memory, which would, should last you many years. Uh, exactly how long these last, we don't know, obviously, because right. we've just started using them. But some and that's vaccine. definitely one of the questions. You've been good at speculating. So since you brought that up, and we, I understand you don't know, no one knows. What is, but lots of people want to know, and it's already come up in chat here. Mm -hmm. uh, what do we believe and admitting it's a guess, maybe an educated guess about the duration of protection? All right, so we don't know, you're right, but we can make some guesses. And uh, But I always like to guess based on some data right? So we've spent the, the last nine months saying when people get infected with SARS-CoV-2, how long does their protection last? Do they make an antibody and a cellular immune response that's durable? Durable means lasts a long time. And we don't, we don't know yet because it's only been you know, months. However, you can look at the antibodies and the immune cells that are made in people who have recovered from infection and see how, how they decay over time. And so we have about eight months worth of time points now, right? You could take samples every month and calculate the decay and then say, how long would this last into the future, right? So it's like decay kinetics. And we can say, looks like after SARS-CoV-2 infection, the people that recover, looks like they have immunity that would last years, okay? Wow. Mm -hmm. Which is good, years. We don't know how many years, but 
and we can say that because the kinetics look similar to viruses that we know very well, right? Yeah. And so it looks like it's going to last years, and that's really good. So what about the vaccine? Now, the vaccine could be better because the virus is mucking with our immune system, for sure. It's encoding a lot of proteins that go in there and tinker in a way, in an attempt to uh, enable it to bypass any immune responses. So it could be that the response to a natural infection is somewhat dampened and a vaccine will be even better because it's just spike protein and none of these other antagonists, we call them immune antagonists. It's just a spike. So it may be that it lasts uh, even longer. Uh, we just don't know. We certainly have vaccines that last a lifetime, the polio vaccine, lifetime lasting. So it's not impossible. So I would say, I would guess that the vaccine is going to last probably a few years and maybe even longer. And I would just say also, the worst is possibly lasting only one year, in which case you might need to get an annual booster. Mm -hmm. um, sort of Not like unlike a flu shot, flu even though the reasons are, exactly. the reasons for a flu shot every year are different. That's right. But you're sort of saying the worst case. I think so. That's my, that's my prediction. And, um, you know, but I also think that once most of, and I said this last time I was on, I think most of, once most of the world is immune in some way by either infection or by vaccination, I then think that this, uh, we will probably not need to immunize uh, anyone any longer. I suspect that uh, the, because the, the disease, the serious disease occurs in people over 65 and will will immunize all of those. And so it's really not going to be an issue anymore. And and the reason I say that is because there are there are other human coronaviruses. There are four other human coronaviruses that infect everybody on the planet and they cause very mild upper tract infection, common colds, right? Sniffles and sore throat. And we get infected with them every year um, and we don't get very sick. And I think this virus will become like that uh, eventually, and we won't even need to immunize. I think we'll need to immunize maybe for 10 years, five to 10 years at the most, and then it's likely we don't have to anymore. Mm. But that's 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 a really big prediction, and I have to watch for that. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so let's talk about safety. Uh, big mm -hmm. question, obviously, uh, in layman's terms, maybe even in your terms, creation of these vaccines was rushed. And as you said, the two vaccines we have, one has an emergency use, author, use authorization. The other mm -hmm. one, we expect that Friday. So they're being authorized only for critical use. Of course, since right. people are dying, everyone is kind of considered critical. So in a, in a way, that constitutes de facto approval, even though that's not legally what it is. Mm -hmm. um, all that aside, there's lots of questions in chat uh, and of course, just in my mind, in about safety, about how do we know, well, I'll just let you take safety generally, and then we can talk about allergic reactions sure. and special cases and so on. So I totally understand that people are concerned about safety. You should be because these are new vaccines and no vaccine has ever been made in less than a year, right? And I was concerned at the beginning also. So I watched all of the, the trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. And I can tell you that, you know, in the numbers of people that have been examined, less than 100,000, there's nothing that I see that is serious that is caused by the vaccine. So what do we do? First of all, you, when you do these safety trials, starting with phase one and phase two and three, in more and more and more people, you give people the vaccine and you give them a placebo 
and then you watch them and you see what happens. And they report very in very great detail what happened to them. And you get very common things like pain at the injection site, right? Makes sense because you're getting an injection. A lot of people get fever because when your immune response kicks in, you can get a fever. Yeah. And that's completely normal. And it means your vaccine is working. And in fact, many people say, ah, I must have placebo because I don't have it. I don't feel bad at all. Right. It kind of gives it away sometimes. Although some people um, actually never get side effects with any vaccine. Uh, I had a flu shot uh, a month ago and my arm was sore for two days. Right. Because my immune cells are coming in and grabbing the vaccine and checking it out. And so when cells come into an area in great numbers, it causes pain because it's making swelling happen, right? So it's completely normal. So that's one of the highest side effects, uh, pain at the injection site, uh, fever. You can also have headache because when, it, when the immune response kicks in, it's making soluble proteins that can go throughout your whole body, including your brain. It's not just at the injection site. So you can have uh, fever, you can have headaches, you can have fatigue. Many people say, I'm, I'm tired for a day or two after the, the flu vaccine. The most and, common thing I saw reported in some news I read this morning was chills. That the most, I could pull up the article maybe, but. You can get chills, yeah, because when I, you have a fever, you feel chilled, right? Yeah, I, I assume that's just like the other side of a fever, right? My yeah. temperature is high, and so I feel cold because yeah. my body's trying to maintain a high temperature. Um, you can have loss of appetite. You, some people get gastrointestinal distress. Important thing to do, which many people don't do, right? They just listen to the reports and say, oh my gosh, these things happen. You have to look at the actual data from the company and see what happened in the vaccine arm and what happened in the placebo arm. Mm. And you can get all the data for all 30,000 individuals if you'd like. And you go down the list and you see fatigue. You know, uh, I'd say 70% of the people who got the vaccine reported fatigue. But you know what? 30% of the people in the placebo arm also reported fatigue Interesting. because people are tired, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's fascinating. Huh. And in the um, Pfizer study, five people died. Well, you know what? Uh, they were evenly distributed between the vaccine and the placebo arm because when you immunize 30,000 people, some of them will Over die. Over a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what did they die of? Well, in the Pfizer vaccine, which was you know just a few months, one died of a car accident, obviously not caused by the vaccine. One died of a heart attack. You know, other things happen to people. Things happen to people on a daily basis. And if, you know, if you immunize 7 billion people, don't you think a lot of people are going to die? Vincent, because what happened to the other three? I think it's relevant. Uh, the other three what? You said five people died. One in a heart attack. Now, one other in other um, events that, you know, stroke. Okay. Those kind yeah. of things that, uh, and, and it's evenly distributed between the vaccine and the placebo. The, the thing that would concern you is if you saw, you know, 10 events in the vaccine group and not in the placebo. Yeah. Now mm -hmm. you do see the muscle soreness, but those are minor, those are considered minor adverse mm -hmm. effects. You know, serious ones, like if you saw 10 strokes in a vaccine group and none in the placebo, that would concern you. And then you'd have to look into that, but we're not seeing that. If you go down the list, and it's really it's like three pages long of all the side effects that were observed, they're always distributed evenly between the vaccine and the placebo group. So there's no indication that anything 
uh, serious has happened and so far. Your your major point though is for the thirty thousand people who got the Pfizer vaccine in the phase three trial, which is what led to authorization. This data is public. It's somewhere out there. Oh, it's all out there for sure. That that you or I, well, you have, and I could go inspect mm -hmm. if I'm really actually and, concerned about this. Yeah. So for example, yeah. last week in advance of the Pfizer uh, FDA meeting, they put on the FDA website, a 120 page document that Pfizer produced with all the data, you know, all the people, the demographics, you know, age, sex, et cetera, um, what doses they got and what they reported. It's all there. You can look at it. And then yesterday for Moderna, the same documents have been put up for tomorrow's hearing. So if you could just go to the website, you'll see links to all these PDFs. And most people don't go through them. 120 pages, right? And it may not be language that you understand. But there, for example, you could see all the side effects in the Moderna trial. So I would say, so, you know, at these numbers, 30,000, 40,000 people, we have seen nothing untoward. Now, there are side effects that could happen which are more rare. And uh, one of these is called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's kind of a paralysis that you can get after uh, certain infections or certain vaccinations. It's quite rare. It's about one in 400,000 or so in the general population. And we had this an issue with the swine flu vaccine. I don't know if you, you remember, but back in 1976, um, there was a small outbreak of influenza in uh, in Fort Dix in New Jersey, and they thought it was going to be the next pandemic. So um, they made a vaccine and they immunized 140 million Americans. It was never the next pandemic. The virus never went anywhere. And uh, it turned out that four, four or 500 people in the U.S. got Guillain-Barre. And some of them get permanent disabilities as a consequence of this. And so that's not good. That typically happens within two months. So we're within, we're past that already with these vaccines. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, you could have a side effect at a rate of uh, one in a million and you wouldn't see it now until you went into uh, a bigger yeah. population. But then I would say to you, and then you say, just, it's always a risk benefit issue, right? You have to balance the risk of a vaccine effect versus the disease. Right, because and you know that in some people the disease can kill you, especially if you're over wow. sixty-five. Something uh, I really want to talk to you about later, Vincent, is yeah, uh, like, and I think this is super relevant to bring up right now is the implications of COVID nineteen on long-term health are insanely oh, yes. terrifying. Of course, holy, absolutely, shit. yeah, they absolutely. are so yes. scary. Like compare, like, like so, people have to put this relative, right? If you have a one in four hundred thousand chance of getting temporary paralysis or some kind of complications around the vaccine. Yes. But 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 up to 88% of people are being shown to have long-term COVID implications that incur, yes. that, that are That's everything right. from brain damage to, to lung damage. It is, is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah you just, take that it's chance. It's not just instantly. old people. It's not just old people. It's young people, yeah. So we did an episode on our podcast where we had two long-term COVID patients. Mm -hmm. One of them was my age uh, in 60s, and the other was a young lady. And they both had, you know, months and months and months of symptoms. So that's another thing. It's not just a matter of, you know, getting pneumonia and maybe dying, but you could recover and have uh, long-term symptoms. Yeah. So you have to balance it. You have to ask yourself, um, do I think the risk is worth a one in a million chance that this vaccine is going to cause some issue? And I, fr frankly, I would take this vaccine today. It's not instantly. Yeah. <laughs>
without question. I, I'm not in line. I mean, I'm 180 millionth in line if you use that calculator that they have uh, online. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. But if you offered it to me today, I would take it. I see no issues with this uh, whatsoever. I give it to my whole family. I'd tell everyone uh, to get it. So I don't see any issues. And I'm, you know, you know, a couple of weeks ago, see people say, oh, the Pfizer vaccine caused Bell's palsy, right? Yeah, but it also did in the placebo arm. And that's, <laughs> they don't tell you that on the mm -hmm. mainstream media. Interesting. They just say it caused Bell's palsy. Well, it didn't cause, right? Because you just noticed that six people got Bell's palsy, which is a paralysis that happens in people, three in the vaccine and three in the in the placebo arm. So you need to look at the data before you jump to conclusions. And the mainstream media doesn't always do that. They, mm -hmm. you know, get their information other ways. So uh, the the other thing is some allergies have now been reported, right? Some people have gotten the vaccine; they have allergic reactions. So most of the most of the long term safety effects that always show up in vaccines are after three months, correct? So after about three months, we kind of we kind of know yes. more or less yes. if there's going to be severe yes. complicate, and we've passed that threshold in the control. We've passed trials. that, but also uh -huh. some of them are um, more rare, and they you know one in a million. Um, the only one that I think might, might be relevant for this, there's a disease that you see in people who get the dengue vaccine or have been previously infected with dengue virus, where the second infection is much more severe than the first one. So it could be that you get this vaccine, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, and then you go out, you're fine for six months, and then maybe next year you get infected and boom, you have a worse disease. That's called antibody-dependent enhancement. And so we haven't seen that. It's a theoretical possibility. I'm not worried about it, but we're going to keep our eyes out. That's why the safety tests are going to actually continue for two years. Mm -hmm. And Oh, you know, is that true? They're going to keep tracking what happens. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the, the phase three trial is not over. It's It goes on for two years from the first day those people were injected. And uh, normally we would wait to license a vaccine till it's all over because normally there's not a big rush. Normally, people aren't dying left and right, right? So that's the trade-off you have to make. You have to you have to do the EUA a little bit sooner, but normally we'd go a lot further out. Um, but I think the the likelihood of uh, more serious disease after infection of a vaccinated person is very low for for this virus, and so I don't see I don't see any negatives, frankly. I understand why people are worried, but I think they're mainly worried because they don't know uh, how these things are tested and what they have to look for and so forth. It's not like every possible illness is going to result from vaccination. There's a, a certain few, like we said, Guillain-Barre and antibody-dependent enhancement and so forth. Other than antibody-dependent enhancement, is there any serious concern a year out, two years out? Do vaccines ever come back to haunt us in that way, or at least with mRNA-type vaccines? It seems to me, is this actually, I, I, this is an assumption, but I, I guess I'm, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Uh, is 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 because it's an mRNA vaccine, and that we're in, we're not injecting actual viral cells. Is that actually implicitly make it safer? Yes, it because like it does. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not. It's not a. So let's let's talk about other kinds of vaccines. Inactivated virus vaccines, right? Yeah. You take the virus, you grow it up in large quantities, and then you you zap it with a chemical so it's not infectious. The the danger there is that it. Maybe you didn't inactivate it completely. And that happened once with the polio vaccine in the 50s. They didn't inactivate it completely. And some people got polio from the vaccine. 
And that happened within weeks after infection. But that's not what these vaccines are. They're mRNA. You can have infectious vaccines that paralyze people. So polio vaccine, the one that's infectious that you drink, one in one and a half million people get, pol get polio from that vaccine. It's a known side effect. Yeah. So, and those are things that happen relatively quickly. Now, antibody-dependent enhancement can happen up to a year or more, depending on when you get infected after vaccination, right? And so that can go a, a long way. And there's also other kinds of vaccine-related disease. So there were two experimental vaccines made years ago. Uh, one was a measles vaccine, not, not at all like the measles vaccine we use now. Another was against a childhood virus called respiratory syncytial virus. And they were made in such a way that when the kids, the kids got vaccinated and then when they were naturally infected later, they got even worse disease than if they hadn't been immunized. So that's vaccine-enhanced disease. And we now know why that happened. The vaccine uh, was just designed poorly. Mm -hmm. It was a, a protein-based wow. vaccine. That's a disaster. Uh, and they, I that... tell you, they spent 50 years trying to figure out what went wrong, we now know. And so that's not going to happen with these mRNA vaccines. Right, because it's not an actual copy of the dead virus cells. No, the mRNA is is just simplicity, right? Mm -hmm. The only thing you worry about is, well, the, the lipid components may cause some allergies in some people and maybe even the nucleic acid. Uh, and whether having immunity uh, is a problem down the road. But I don't think, I see no evidence for that in, in these uh, human coronaviruses. So I'm pretty confident. And I think, you know, if you want, you can go and look at the literature, but it's hard to read. But I'm I'm saying that, there will be some side effects. They'll be very minor. They'll be rare. And you have to decide um, what's your risk benefit. So um, for a special special question there is um, people are asking about what about pregnancy and fertility? So when you talked about rare, often for at least medicines, sometimes the effects aren't seen until you have a child. Um, what, if anything, do we know or can we say about this vaccine? Because I don't think we've tested that yet. I don't know if pregnant women were included or excluded from the trials. So maybe since you've looked more deeply into that, you can say a little bit about pregnancy and fertility and what we know with this vaccine. So the, the pregnant women were not enrolled in the trial. So they, So we didn't test it on them. We didn't, but some people got pregnant during the trial, as you might expect with 30, 60,000 people, right? Yes. Uh, so, people do that. How, how dare they? Yes, Step one, so, you're signing up for a year vaccine trial. Step two, please, pregnant. no fun for that year. So they, they have been, and there have been no issues with those pregnancies, mm. uh, as far as I know. But they're, they're just a handful of people. Right. It's not the numbers. So pregnant women will be tested separately after we're confident that this vaccine, these vaccines are completely safe, you know, in the general population. As you know, right now we haven't done kids under 18 or 16 years of age, right? Um, and so we can't give that vaccine to that age group yet. So, Which is another right. important, important point is the vaccine right now uh, won't be, is, isn't authorized for use in minors essentially. No. So the Pfizer vaccine was tested in some 16 to 18-year-olds. And so the EUA includes 16 and up. But uh, the but below 16, no, you cannot be given this vaccine. And the Moderna vaccine, below 18 years of age. It will be tested in those populations eventually. 
but fortunately, you know, those are a lower risk yeah. population than older people. So that's not a bad thing. <clears throat> um, so as of right now, there's nothing known really about pregnancy or fertility or long-term, you know, people would be worried about, for example, birth defects or other things like that. While I, uh, well, anyway, there's basically nothing tested known. No, that's correct. There's okay. nothing known. But again, I say this is, you know, it's a piece of mRNA encoding one virus protein. It's not like it's a replicating virus that could do something to a fetus, right? So I think the risks are much less than mm -hmm some of the other vaccines that we are using, which is not to say that the spike couldn't do something, but you know, it is, again, it's injected in your arm. It's mainly gonna stay in that region. It's not gonna be disseminating throughout your body, the spike protein that is. Now the antibodies and the T cells will, and they could cause some issues in theory, right? Because right. they can go throughout the body. So, I mean, that's why we will test it in pregnant women, just to be sure. And then I'll turn it back to you in a sec, Devin. The other question I've heard is what about, um, I've heard some about allergy, uh, people having allergic reactions uh, mm -hmm. to this vaccine. Now I know that can happen, you know, when I get a flu vaccine, they ask me already if I'm allergic to eggs or egg products or whatever, but what's going on here with allergic reactions to this vaccine? Right. So, you know, people who have severe allergies are, are hypersensitive to many things, right? And this is a new thing being injected into you. It's a lipid and an RNA, and both of those can trigger immune reactions, which in turn can trigger allergies in a certain number of people. You know, in the trials that were done so far, we didn't see any uh, allergic reactions that seemed to be caused by immunization. But of course, as soon as you move into the general population and start immunizing more people, you, you might see others. And so we saw, I think, two in the UK and one here uh, in North America, people getting severe allergic reactions uh, after being vaccinated. Now, we don't have a lot of data on that. We, we don't know if the vaccine was the trigger or if it was something else. Um, we don't know how serious it is. But I would say, you know, if you know you have uh, allergies. You, first, you have to, before you get this vaccine, you have to speak to your physician who knows what kinds of allergies you have, right? Because they're all very different and how serious uh, they might be. And, and it may be that you carry an EpiPen with you, which you probably do anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And you get this vaccine. In fact, one of these cases that they gave them epinephrine to quell the, uh, the immune response. So I don't think that's a, a serious situation. Uh, especially if the numbers are low, but it's expected. You, you're expecting to have uh, uh, allergies of this sort. Excellent. Devin, what would you like to go to next? Do you feel like safety has been pretty well covered? I, I, I think um, someone asked in, in chat, and I, I don't really want to put this burden on you, but if you were to try to convince someone who doesn't believe this is safe, um, that, that it is, what would you lead with? Well, you know, this in the a hard end, question, but we have to deal with it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's no problem. I deal with it all the time, and know, I'm happy yeah. to talk to people because I understand the concern. It's not like I want to minimize your concern. All right, I understand most people are not anti-vaxxers, but they're coming from a position of I'm concerned for my health. Totally get it, right? Totally get it. So, of course, it depends your age group to a certain extent. You know, if you're over 65, you should really rethink any hesitancy you have about this vaccine, because you're in that group where 
you know, the, sever the severity, the mortality is very high, mm -hmm. which is not to say that young people do not die. They do. It's just rarer. Right. And that's why if you're below 18 and you're not vaccinated right now, it's probably okay because you're not likely to get life-threatening illness. So that's one part of the calculation. But I've looked at all these data as they come out at every paper that's published from the, 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 these trials just involving Moderna and Pfizer. I've looked at all the safety data. I've looked at every patient and I don't see anything so far that would ring, raise flags for me at, in terms of safety. So I am convinced that to the extent they've been trialed, uh, they are safe. Now, unless you're a healthcare worker, and over 65, you're not going to get this vaccine for another four or five months anyway. Yeah. And by yeah. then, we're going to know a lot more about safety, mm -hmm. right? Because it's going to be in many, many people uh, by then. And you can make a decision based on that if you would like. And, you know, because I'm not going to get this vaccine for, I would say, until maybe April or, or May. And, and that's a lot more months of observation. And, and many, and many more millions of people. And more people are going to be immunized. The people who are already immunized will look, go farther out and see if there are any longer-term effects. They're going to be infected and see if there's any enhanced disease. So I, I don't think it's an issue because most of you who are out there are probably not healthcare workers and um, are not going to be immunized for a while, right? So right now we're doing healthcare workers and people in like nursing homes and those kinds of facilities who are at very high risk uh, for getting infected. Yeah, for, for those in the audience who don't know, about 40% of all deaths in the U.S. right now are coming out of nursing homes. Yeah. So 60% yeah. obviously coming from elsewhere, but about 40% are, are in the nursing home population. And so obviously important to try and protect them first. And Go as ahead, you know, Doug. also many people uh, who are in the front lines, right? Not just healthcare workers, but people who have to go to restaurants or stores and work every day and mm -hmm. have people, they're getting a lot of sickness as well. So mm -hmm. you'll be up there among the first to be immunized as well. They, those individuals have been bearing an un, un, a higher percentage of the, the serious illness because yes. they have to work every day. You well, know, they're exposed. In New York City, in New York City, the transit workers, the, the subways and the buses are still running. You know, they're in there every day with a lot of contact and right. they're at high risk. So they're the ones who should be immunized and they have to say uh, to themselves, if you have a choice, what's my risk benefit calculation? Do, do I think that I can, you know, survive for another six months or should I get this? I think that's really what you have to do. But realistically, I think most of you who are worried you got time. You have probably five, six months to see some more data, and you know we could we could have another conversation, say in um, in early next year, when many, many millions of people have been immunized, and I can say, hey, here are the data, nothing new or something serious, right? We'd we we'd love to do that, Devin and I love. We learned so much from you. Yeah, and oh, it's such a, so. so important too. Um, I want to. I I think safety as far as we can go. Um. I'm really interested in this sort of asterisk that you put on protected from disease in that. So, so there's two questions mm -hmm. that kind of yes. come from this. One is that you've said that the vaccine has over 90% efficacy. Um, if we take that number, literally, that means one in 10 people don't have efficacy, number one. Right. And then number That's two right. is um, what is, what is your exact vernacular choice of protection against disease? Right. So let's talk about that because efficacy 
can mean different things. And mm -hmm. I, I was sitting in a doctor's office today and watching the TV and they got it wrong. They said this vaccine is 94% effective at preventing against infection. That's not right. The two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, have asked, does the vaccine prevent disease, any COVID-related disease, mild, intermediate, or serious, okay? And when you test vaccines, that's typically what you do. So when the polio vaccines were first developed, they injected kids, they injected placebo, and they said, who gets paralyzed? And who doesn't? That's yeah. it. Yeah. They didn't look for infection. Mm -hmm. They looked for disease. So here, Moderna and Pfizer said, we immunize 15,000 people with vaccine, 15,000 with placebo out in the world. Tell us when you get sick. That's it. Sick. They didn't say swab your nose every day and we're going to see if you get infected. That would be an interesting study to do. And I'm hoping that gets done at some point. But right now, all we know is 94% efficacy at preventing disease of any kind from mild to severe. So literally it's self, it's supported though. In other words, it's very interesting. Those people may have all been hypothetically infected, but they didn't feel bad enough to tell the vaccine program, exactly. I feel sick. Yes, so they had symptoms, you know, cough, fever, et cetera and their instructions, which they took home with them for the trial. If you feel any of these symptoms, you gotta let us know and then take the self swab kit that you have, swab, send it in, and then they will do a, a, a diagnostic test to confirm that they're infected. So very, very important in this is, uh, does that include any kind of long-term symptoms outside of what you would normally expect, like people report fatigue no matter what, but like things like neurological problems, any, any of the things we're seeing in long-term COVID cases of infection, that that did not show up uh, in the the, the uh, only neurological problem on this on this form that these mm -hmm. patients these uh, participants got was loss of smell or taste. Okay, which but, is consistent with COVID nineteen infection rate. Yeah, that's yeah, one okay. of the signature mm -hmm. signs and symptoms of COVID. Right now, now is that but, it, was that temporary or 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 like we're seeing in long term cases? Some quite a few people have gotten a loss of smell and taste and it hasn't returned. Well, you know. It, it's it's an acute thing, right? They yeah. say when when you first get this symptom, let us know right away, and then we don't know how long it continues, right? Mm. And it's only been uh, a few months that this trial is ongoing, so we're really not in the in the frame of uh, long term COVID yet. So so the answer is no, we're not looking uh, for that. But uh, these patients are all being followed up for two years, so, so we'll see. You know, some of the long term we'll learn COVID more. But Devin's asking a great question, which is. What he's getting at is we know that the long the long haulers, so-called, the people who get COVID mm -hmm. and then have uh, long-term problems, even though they don't die and they don't necessarily feel critical, they have these long-term problems, whether mm -hmm. it's fatigue or circulatory, there's many different reported things. Pretty much what he's getting at, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Devin. What, what, well, I, I think what I'm really getting at is, um, so, so I, I think that I'm, personally concerned about infection of COVID-19. Once, once you're infected with the virus, um, the what's, I mean, I, I don't know, you can knock me over if I'm dead. I feel like that's probably better than having like a pulmonary embolism or, 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 or neurological complications for the rest of my life. It, for me personally, right, as, as a result of the long-term COVID situation, which is terrifying. It's, it, it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, and, and I follow virology quite pretty aggressively. 
So, so like, um, I mean, we see this in some in some patients and other um, in other viruses, um, but like on yeah. a widespread scale, what I'm asking is how likely is it that this vaccine um, number one induces possible long term COVID symptoms and number two prevents them? Um, right, because, so because does it prevent against infection? Yeah. So we yeah. have not seen in any of the vaccines that it induces long term COVID on its own. And it shouldn't because it's not an infectious agent at all. Right. Mm -hmm. But there, you can get long-term COVID from an asymptomatically infected person. So you can have no symptoms when that virus first gets in you and it does its thing for 10 days and goes away. And then you can develop long-term COVID. So you can have an asymptomatic infection. Yeah, and that, so yeah. the vaccine trials are not looking at that. But maybe it could very well be. Let's do a hypothetical. Maybe the vaccine prevents disease, but not infection. Mm -hmm. So you can get vaccinated. You still, the virus will come in, you reproduce, shed it. And maybe you get long-term COVID months later. We'll see as we follow these individuals so, so, up. So the or, answer is we don't know if the vaccine prevents infection. No, absolutely not. I want people mm -hmm. to get that from this, if anything. The fact we do not know if the vaccines prevent infection. There's limited data uh, from Moderna where they had some fraction of the people sw do weekly swabs. And then they said, is the vaccine uh, knocking down infection, you know, asymptomatic infection. Mm -hmm. And I think there was, in that sense, there was in the small number of people that they looked at that in 58% efficacy at preventing infection, 94% for disease, but only 58% for preventing infection, but it's a small number of people and they need to do a lot more. So the point here is that these vaccines may not prevent you from being infected, but they will prevent you from getting sick. So and that has very big implications, obviously, right? Because if only half the population got vaccinated, say, that would mean the other half could still be infected as the virus goes through the vaccinated people and, and is transmitted, right? Yeah. So this is, we need to vaccinate a lot of people. That's maybe the, what we end up having to do. Can, can I, can I be clear? Just, this is a really important point. You, you said mm -hmm. clearly, we don't know if the vaccine prevents infection in the same way. Do we not know if it does prevent infection? Is it a 50, 50? Is it, is it, a, is it a, like, it, like it could it prevent infection as easily as it couldn't? How does the, how does the science shake out on that? Well, most human vaccines don't prevent infection. Oh. Polio vaccines do not prevent infection. The measles vaccine does not prevent infection. They prevent disease, which is really what you are concerned about. And that's why we like to get a lot of people immunized. So everybody is protected. The, the, the question at the bottom of this that we are speculating because we don't know is the long-term side effects people are having from getting COVID, the long-term symptoms if they don't develop full-blown COVID because the vaccine does prevent disease, mm -hmm. are they less likely to also develop the long-term complications? Because that's what Devin's worried about is, will he yep. get these long-term complications? Yep. Uh, yep. And so- I'm tired of having, I, I'm like terrified of having a brain slug. That's, that's <laughs> like, like that's, that's it. Like, and so I yeah. think from the, so first thing is we clearly don't know. The data is not there yet. No. No, Second thing yet. is, with this question. small number yeah. of people, 58% of the Moderna people who did the swabs did not apparently get infected, which is good. Right. And then the third piece is, 
it's logical. Doesn't mean it will be true. This is pure reasoning. It's abstract and could easily not turn out that way. But that if you're not developing enough of an infection to feel sick, you are then less likely to also have the brain slug that you're worried about. But that's a yeah. guess. No, as I've said, people have had asymptomatic infections and still develop long-term long COVID. Yeah. Oh, because okay. it's, yeah. it doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be the virus that is doing the long term. It's your body's response to infection that is somehow well, or like unhinged. COVID nineteen can pass the blood brain barrier, for example, and cause neurological complications. Right. So, so you may yeah, have, yeah, but it, it's not. In, it's pretty rare. I looked at uh, yeah. some studies yeah. recently, and and the number. So they did an autopsy study with uh, thirty or forty patients who had died, and only a small number of them had actual virus in the brain. So, yeah, but, and, <laughs> but they did. <laughs> yeah, but and, but and was you another... know, many more people, many more people have neurological symptoms, and so I think they are an indirect result of infection. I don't think they're oh, all virus okay. getting into the brain. The but other look, one, you the, could have a mild infection, not have any symptoms, and the virus triggers something which then gives you later long-term COVID. That's absolutely plausible, I think. And if the vaccine doesn't prevent infection, then you might still be able to uh, develop long-term COVID, even if you're vaccinated. I think that is highly unlikely because I think the vaccines are gonna knock down uh, virus levels in you, the viral loads, yeah, and yeah. that probably is going to make a difference. But um, we'll know. We'll know within the next six months or so. But it's very important. I agree. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to think that these vaccines are preventing you from getting infected. So you can't get your shot and rip off your face mask and, and go about life as usual. You're going to have to wait until most people are uh, immunized in the country before you can do that. Or at well, least the, the other bubble. reason to do that is the the vaccines are not 100% effective. Even if I get my two shots, they're about 95%, which still means I have a one in 20 chance. So if I, if I run around to my favorite rave right after that, and uh, you know, um, I, sure. I am still with no mask, if I take enough one in 20 chances, I'm gonna get burnt. Yes, no, you're right. It's not 100%, it's never 100%. And that's why we want as many people as possible to be immunized and with most vaccines, you know, the flu vaccine being an exception, we do pretty well here in the U.S. and other countries do very well so, at re approaching 100% immunization. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit confused. Is like you're you're talking about um, immunization, but what that really means is that sort of the infection, since this doesn't prevent against infection, everybody, presumably a, a high enough percentage of people do get infected, even if they are vaccinated, um, they don't produce symptoms uh, for the vast majority because they they're they're um, the antibodies, the viral, like you said, the viral load is lower. The the, the antibodies fight against the the the, the virus successfully. Um, so what immunization really looks like? Everybody kind of getting COVID nineteen, and then or the large percentage of getting COVID nineteen, um, and then as as an infection, um, whether they're vaccinated or not, and then that being the case at, at some point is that is that correct or or how how are we looking at it? Yeah, well, mm -hmm. if everyone could get infected naturally, that would work. But the problem is that too many people would die, right? No, I, I'm saying I'm saying everyone's going to get infected anyway if the vaccine doesn't prevent infection. It just if 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 like yeah, we're yes, going to lower death correct. rates and we're going to lower symptoms. But yeah, what that's I, correct. I, I'm a, I'm a, I, essentially here's an easier way to answer this because I think I'm asking a difficult question. Of how you're defining immunity. Immunity means um, 
essentially ubiquitous infection? So immunity is, that's a great question. How do mm -hmm. you define it is important. You can define it in two ways. You could say immunity to disease or to infection. And they're two very different things. You got to keep them separate, right? So we're looking for these vaccines that are being tested now to prevent disease. We're looking mm -hmm. for immunity to disease. Whether they give you immunity to infection is another question, which isn't being looked at, but will be eventually, they may or may not give you immunity to infection. I just think you have to interpret it with the data we're getting. We're not getting any data except for this small numbers in the, in the uh, Moderna trial about immunity to infection because all that's being tested is whether you get sick or not, okay? So it could very well be, yes, if you immunized uh, everyone, then everyone would get infected every year because this virus is gonna be around forever. Mm -hmm. that, that would boost your immunity and that would protect everyone. And that's what happens with the common cold coronavirus is everyone gets infected every year. Everyone has a low level of immunity and you get infected the next year, you never get sick because you're protected against disease, not infection. So the common cold coronas, they induce immunity to disease, not to infection. So I suspect this virus is gonna end up doing the same thing. I could be wrong, mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my prediction. But in the end, it's good because people don't die, right? Very few people die of common cold coronavirus infections and 90% of the world is infected every year. I I think our, our differential is, um, I, and I appreciate that your, your, your kind of KPI or goal or your sort, of, your sort of success metric is mortality. I think that's really important. Um, I think about a lot of the economic implications and the, um, and the enormous um, burden on our medical system of potentially yeah. 80 out of 100 patients that, receive, that get COVID-19 <clears throat> having some kind of further complications, which doctors don't seem to be able to do anything about. Maybe we should transition into long-term COVID. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously well, really fascinated I mean, about that, yeah. So first of all, it, it could be that the vaccine prevents long-term COVID. We don't yeah, know. I'm just that. giving yeah. you the scenarios, right, mm -hmm. of what could happen. Uh, I'm hoping that it's, but I just don't want you to assume that these vaccines are preventing infection when yeah. we don't mm -hmm. test for that yet. We may eventually, and it may turn out to be at least protective enough so that we don't get uh, any long-term COVID, but um, we just don't know at this point. In the early next year, we may know. Who knows? Now, in terms of long-term COVID, you know, all kinds of very ill-defined symptoms, right? Not unlike chronic fatigue syndrome, mm -hmm. right? Which has been yeah. recognized for decades as something that seems to happen after an infection of some kind. And then people end up with lifelong fatigue and other issues, neurological problems of all sorts, that were initially triggered by an infection. Mm -hmm. So this looks just like that, except it's a different virus, right? And in fact, I keep, I keep, uh, um, I, I follow the CFS literature, and those patients are going nuts because they say, for decades we have been complaining, and no one pays attention to us, yeah. and now all of a sudden there's long-term COVID, and they're getting all this attention. It's the same thing, or very similar. <laughs> disease. So to them, it's very frustrating. And maybe this will stimulate more research into CFS as well. That could be the outcome because there's so many people, as you said, that are developing long-term COVID. And I, uh, after and I understand chronic fatigue syndrome is one of the primary um, long-haul COVID-like reports. I'm a little bit more concerned about um, the secondaries, which are lung and neurological damage. 
Do you, do you think there's any, particularly, so we know that COVID-19 um, can, can do permanent damage to lungs, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my colleague, Daniel Griffin, talks about patients who, who, who have her lungs are shot. They need a lung transplant, and that's becoming more and more common. Your lungs are completely shot. There's no way they're going to recover. You need to have a, a lung transplant. Oh. Yes. Hopefully uh, this is rare. I hadn't heard that, but that's that's a pretty brutal side it effect. Is, it's relatively rare, but I just saw a paper, uh, a case study series the other day, uh, documenting it in, in multiple patients and saying, okay, this the only solution is a lung transplant. Um, you know, he sent his patient home. She'd been in a hospital for two months, no more virus, couldn't get off oxygen, had to send her home with uh, oxygen, right? Um, the only way. And she said, I'm finally able to stand up because just standing up exhausted her. Yeah. So yes, this is a big deal. And on the neurological issues as well of all sorts, you know, from brain fog to cognitive issues and perception and so forth seem to be altered for sure. But the good, the good news is, okay, that so many people are developing this at a time when this pandemic is very visible to the medical community. They're going to, they're getting attention. NIH is, putting money into this is saying we have to figure out how to treat these patients because right now we don't know how to treat them. Yeah. They're figuring out how to do that and they're getting attention that the MECFS community never got. So that's good. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're going to have uh, solutions at some point. Um, I, I did, as I said, I did a podcast with two individuals who um, have, have long-term COVID uh, themselves. One is a physician who researches CFS. Mm -hmm. All right. She got long-term COVID. And the other is a, a journalist by the name of Fiona Lowenstein, who started a support group uh, for long-term COVID patients. There's thousands of people who are networking and uh, trying to, to, you know, get help and so forth. So it's markedly different from the MECFS story, which started very small and never got uh, a lot of traction, unfortunately. So I think you're concerned that what are we going to do about these patients is being addressed. It's not going to happen overnight, unfortunately, but, you know, therapeutic modalities are going to be sorted out for sure. The, I have no doubt. Um, okay. So, so, so it, it, it seems like such a wide, okay. Actually, I have a much better question. Is the risk, the long-term effects that are coming from COVID uh, is that abnormal uh, for a virus? Is this is this a virus that seems to to cause more long term effects in our population than say a, a flu that comes along, or is this consistent with other viruses that we that that commonly infect human populations? Well, of course, it depends on the population because MECFS patients have any number of virus infections that seem to trigger. They can have a common cold, they can have influenza, they can have a herpes infection, cytomegalovirus. So there's no one virus. It just seems to be an immune trigger. And one of the theories is that you make some uh, autoantibodies that are involved in the, in the disease, right? The, the COVID is, seems to be different because <clears throat> it's a brand new virus and so many people are getting it all at once, right? Whereas the MECFS, it's asynchronous. People are getting viruses left and right of different sorts. So I think a lot of viruses in the right patient, depending on 
some aspect of your genetics will cause these long-term effects. And the only reason it's accentuated for COVID is because there's so many infections ongoing. Right I, now. I understand that. What I'm asking, I think very importantly, is if that differs, if COVID is an abnormal virus in that sense. I that, don't think it is. It's just oh, really? abnormal in the sense that it is brand new to the human population. It's infecting, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And that that's a perfect situation to see an accentuated side effect like this, right? If this were, you know, not causing pandemics, you would see some disease uh, like long COVID, but not all at once. So I, I don't think it's unusual. No, I think flu and herpes viruses and other viruses can do similar things. Yeah. It's mm. just that the extent of infection is there's so much attention on this and so many people with it. You're, you're essentially, what you're saying, whether it turns out to be true or not statistically, is that the discussion about long-haul symptoms is because we have this disease under a microscope right now. There's so much in focus. Part, well, because there's so many infections, right? Well, what, what, one time. if we use like a literal example, right? Um, there, uh, lots of COVID-19 patients have been uh, ha like that have had long-term symptoms have have had lung damage, uh, but we've seen in pneumonia, for example, the exact same thing. So, 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 like, what I'm asking is, like, does COVID-19 um, sort of uh, numerically report any kind of particular long-term symptoms that seem inconsistent with other viruses? Basically, that 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 like, uh, like for example, COVID-19 might have might might seem to have like a a higher rate of lung damage or brain damage among. People. Is there anything like that, or is it just consistent with, like you had said, like you just said, uh, because we have see this infection of millions of people at a time, um, we're now getting these reports consistent with what would happen with any other virus. I, I understand there's complications with yeah. herpes yeah. viruses. No, I, I yeah. don't think there's anything special. I just think the numbers uh, are part of it, and it's a brand new virus that is uh, ripping through the population. And once that's done, you know, in 10 years or so, you will, you will see much less of this. It will be sporadic, but you'll still see the same thing. And I would say, you know, any virus that's new to the population does different things. You know, when HIV came in, uh, I'd never seen immunosuppression before like mm -hmm. that, right? And all these secondary infections. And turns out a lot of viruses can do that. You know, when Ebola infects people, it rips through many organ systems. And that was unusual, but turns out that a lot of viruses that cause hemorrhagic fevers, right? So I just think it's a matter of what we're aware of. I don't think this is anything uh, unusual. I think this is just another virus, frankly. It just happens huh? to be infecting a heck of a lot of people and causing havoc. That, I think that's so, actually really important um, that, because that totally changes my view on COVID. I, I, I viewed COVID as an, having abnormal long-term effects. Um, and, and I guess that particularly triggered me because like, I've been concerned a long time about like neurological implications from viruses, uh, like HSV one and two. Um, and, uh, that's, that's really interesting that, that you say that, that it has no, so, so to be clear that the take that I get from that is that there isn't really any meaningful difference in long-term, like, we're going to see long haul patients in, uh, all, nearly all viral infections. Um, and, the, and, and then COVID isn't abnormally percentage ticked up as a result of that. Yeah, I yeah. think many viruses have long-term effects mm -hmm. in that most of them have been in humans for many, many years. So the population has evolved with them and, and learned to live with them. This is just brand new and it's going to be a while before we equilibrate, I think. I mean, that is my opinion. Yep. You know, not everyone will agree with me, but that's how I view it.
Should people who are um, who have had COVID in the past and tested positive get vaccinated? Yeah, that's a question that's come up a bunch. If I if I've had it, yeah, 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 yeah I get that all the time, and I say we do not know how durable natural immunity is. Although I said earlier that I think it could be a, a years. Uh, we we don't have a definitive answer, so I would say yes, you should be vaccinated. Um, there's no downside to that. And and it's going to boost your immunity. So I think it's a good idea. They're not going to. Someone asked me. Several people have asked me, why don't they check you first for antibodies before you get vaccinated, right? And that would, you know, it's already a complicated undertaking to immunize so many people at once, right? That mm -hmm. would make it even more more complicated to give you a test and have you come back and so forth. But I don't think it's necessary. I think you just need to immunize everyone. Yeah. Well, the, the argument that's been here in chat is with a limited supply of vaccine, maybe we're wasting it on people. If we could quickly, to your point, there's complexity. If we could quickly sort out who's been tested, All right, then, let's say or sorry, who's been infected and recovered, yeah. then we could give the vaccine to the people who really need it, in quotes. Right. But even if you let's say, OK, the logistics aside, we don't know if, you know, everyone's going to have a different level of antibodies. Right. You're going to have one to 10. Someone's going to have one to 200, one to 50. Which one is the right is level? Enough. What's the cutoff? We have no idea what the cutoff would be. So we can't do it. OK. So a question that I've seen a lot here, it's surprising to me, but I love your take on it. We've had several people say that they're smokers or their whole family smokes and they haven't gotten uh, COVID. And there have been rumors, I guess, that either smoking, vaping, or nicotine are somehow protecting people from infection. Uh, do we know anything? I have my own perspectives about Sounds that, like maybe. But, <laughs> but is there anything that we know medically? Well, the studies I have seen, and I've looked at a few, actually associate a higher risk of severe COVID with smoking uh, and that sort of thing. So I have not seen any protection and it would make no sense biologically mm -hmm. that you would yeah. be protected because smoking compromises your immune response in your lungs and makes you in general susceptible to respiratory infections. And that's what the literature is, is supporting. In fact, early on, there was a paper showing that smoking upregulated the cell receptor for the virus, right? Mm -hmm. Turns it up. And so, um, which would only make the cells more infectable. So I don't think there's anything to that. You're just lucky that you haven't been in it. So happens that you smoke, you know, sometimes these things are coincidental. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to ask because it had come up several times. I agree with you. It seems like anything for a disease that attacks the lungs, things that compromise the lungs, which smoking does, would be detrimental, but you never know about medical interaction. So I wanted to check yeah, about what yeah. we actually knew. Yep, yep. People just tell these stories, man. If I, if I breathe out the smoke, it creates a shield and it, and protects uh, against the virus. <laughs> we'll just well, we do have to, you know, um, no, it's good. You want to clarify these. We're, we're trying to debunk yeah. some of the, uh, reasons people, your chat's just looking for more excuses to smoke weed is what's going on here, man. Like that's, uh, yeah. yes. Well, chat did also ask if, if I have high CBD usage, what will that do? Um, and I, uh, I, until now I chose not to address that question, except to say they'd probably be hungry or sleepy. Mm. Um, you know, there are many, there are many, um, 
things, I'll call them things like CBD and other treatments of various sorts that people want to know if it's going to help or not. But the only way you know if something is worthwhile, say to prevent serious disease, is, is to do a trial like we're doing with the vaccine trials. And, you know, vitamin D, for example, right? There have been some studies which associate uh, higher vitamin D levels with less severe COVID in some countries, right? And that could very well be, but you cannot make an observational study. You say measure of vitamin D in people and, and see if they get serious COVID. That's an observation. It doesn't mean it's causation. You have to do a trial where what? you take people and, get, and supplement them with vitamin D, but that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And for vitamin D, just take it, right? Because yeah. it's good yeah. for you. And I mean, if you're not getting a lot of sun like me, you just take it. And it's it's not an issue. To to to, uh, to me, it seems pretty interesting though that like over eighty five percent of cases that present in most hospitals have long term vitamin D deficiency as well, right? So that's like like I said, that's not a correlation, but it's very interesting. And 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 I very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to get vitamin D pills. They're cheap. Yeah. And uh, everyone should be taking them. And most physicians will recommend that you simply take them. And I, because as I say, no one's going to do a trial for vitamin D. Uh, and so in the meantime, just take it. And that's the end of that story. But there are many other things that are not as easy to say, just take it, right? And well, I have some, they're problematic. I have a really interesting follow-up question to this. This is something that I, I think um, on other shows and podcasts that, are, that, that talk about this a lot, like Joe Rogan, um, he's always obsessed with this idea of, can we build up our immunity? So, so, and I'll put this to you in this question. Uh, if we are to sit for five to six months before we can receive a vaccine, right? Um, other than the things that I think are, are we, we, we've platformed already and I think are obvious, wear a mask, right? Um, stay six feet away from people, socially distance as much as you possibly can. Um, are there things we can do that, uh, not, not with, as I asked you this question before, and, and the answer was nebulous because we didn't have a lot of time. And have you discovered anything that you suspect would lead towards better immune function if we were to get COVID-19 uh, in, in the preceding, in the following five to six months uh, before we're, while we're waiting for a vaccine? What can we do to best position ourselves to avoid it or thrive? I, I love this question, right? Other than face mask and social distance. Yeah, if we're if going you, to, what can we do, do to prepare our bodies? 50 pushups a day, like I'm, I'm down, like what, what do I got to do? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, no one has done studies to answer your question, right? Because there's Damn so it, many get on it. There's so many things that you could test. But what we do know. What, what do you suspect? Is yeah. that mm -hmm. there are ways that we know to keep a, a robust immune system, right? Which just includes general things that make sense, right? Like getting enough sleep, eating properly, uh, exercising, right? Have healthy habits, don't smoke. Uh, don't over drink and so forth. These things compromise your immune system. And we simply know that that gives a better uh, outcome for infectious diseases in general, right? And there's, nothing, there's no magic bullet there. But in fact, many people don't have good habits. They don't have good lifestyle habits. They don't get enough sleep. I mean, sleep is one of the biggest ones. You get two hours of sleep a night, your body is just trashed. And it's not going to make a good immune response to infection. So if anything, Try and try and get more sleep. Try and eat properly. Try and make sure you're getting, you know, the the right amount of all the vitamins that you would need. 
you know, these are just things we've known for years uh, and they make perfect sense, but they will never be assessed in the context of COVID except in an associative study, like you said, you know, some people who have uh, serious COVID have low vitamin D levels. That's as, that's as far as it gonna go. it's going to go with that. So there's no magic, unfortunately. Uh, age is a big factor, as you know, right? Being old sucks for COVID. Mortality yeah. rates are really high. So not, nothing you can do about that. Don't be old. Yeah, be, be less old. And why is that? Your you immune system declines old. as you get old, <laughs> right? Your, your, your immune system declines. Yeah. Your bone marrow, which contains you know, pre precursors to all of your immune cells, that gets depleted as you get older. And in fact, you can't make memory cells, immune cells of certain kinds as you age. And that's why you get more serious infections as you age. Bottom line, mammals did not evolve to live a long time for the most part. And usually it's past reproduction and that's it, buddy. Everything else is gravy past reproduction because that's all that matters in evolution. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Damn. So we've covered a lot of great questions. Um, one we haven't gotten to is what percentage of the people every I would like to know when I get to go back to quote unquote normal life. How how many people have to get vaccinated oh, and goodness. when might that happen to where I can go back to restaurants and spend time with friends? There's a light at the end of the yeah. tunnel. How long is the sure tunnel? There is. Sure there is. I think next summer we we probably start to get back to normal. I mean, it could be earlier, but I would predict next summer, most people are going to be immunized by then uh, or enough to give you some kind of herd immunity. 70% is the number we think that, that has to be immunized. So, um, but you know, you don't have to have a lockdown until that. That's the thing. If the reason we do lockdowns is because people don't observe proper non-pharmaceutical intervention procedures and then the virus goes crazy as it is now and then you have to lock down. But I think you can... You can do things without a lockdown as long as you distance and so forth and take precautions. Um, but, um, you know, this year has gone pretty quickly, I think, at least for me. So I say next summer, less than a year from now. So next summer, just people are confused because it's December. You mean seven months from now, the summer of 2021, right? Not 2022. No, I, I think 2021 is the year that we get back to normal for sure. That's why we're rushing these vaccines. Otherwise, we'd take our time. Um, okay. Now, that's the U.S. and many other countries. I, I saw an estimate today that, you know, every country in the world will not be immunized until 2024. And that's a tragedy in my view, right? People really should be able to get immunized next year. But that's, you know, not every country is lucky or fortunate as we are, sadly. Um but the U.S., yes, we will be fixed next year. And, um, you know, in the early months of 2021, we're going to have ramping up of vaccine production. Both Pfizer and Moderna said so they can make a billion doses next year. And many of those will come in the first months. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that by the summer, uh, we'll have a good fraction of the population immunized and circulation be, will be way down okay. for sure. And I think we go back to school in the fall of 2021, the way it used to be. That's my, that's my thought. All right. So uh, this is a little bit, um, I have a guest who says, uh, 
Hello, Dr. Racaniello. First of all, I love your work. Here's my question. Here in Brazil, there was a study which associated BCG, parentheses, tuberculosis, vaccinated mm. people to better immunity to COVID. Is this association plausible? Okay, so th that brings up a great uh, little line of discussion. All right, we've got them excited. Good job. So uh, two, there are two different things with vaccines. First of all, some vaccines seem to give you some short-term protection, and BCG is one of them. Polio vaccine is another one. Um, even influenza vaccine. These are vaccines that they are infectious, where the the agent is, you know, infectious. And they seem to give you some kind of general early immune boost that lasts for three or more four months. And so they're doing actually a clinical trial with BCG in healthcare workers to see if it gives them that protection. I think that's a great idea mm -hmm. uh, because you know another getting another vaccine which is already approved and safe makes perfect sense to me. So hopefully that one will work out. The other the other thing I want to tell you about though is a there seemed to have been some correlation between getting measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and protection against serious disease also, just like the, the BCG. And that seemed to uh, last longer. And it turns out, and we did a study, uh, we, we looked at this study on TWIV recently, uh, immunization with measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. There are three different viruses in it. It turns out that the mumps component will protect you uh, against severe COVID-19 uh, for as long as the titers are at a certain level. And there seems to be, which is really weird, it's not this general three-month thing with BCG. It's a longer-term protection based on actual antibodies that seem to cross-react between mumps virus and SARS-CoV-2. So wow. if you want to do something, go get MMR vaccine. You probably got it already. You'll get a boost, and you may be protected against SARS-CoV-2. I think those... Uh, studies That's look insane. pretty damn good. Why, is it, why aren't more people talking about that? Yeah, same question. What do you, you know, what we do you don't hear? have we have a hundred thousand listeners on my podcast. That's a fraction of the world. That's the reason they listen to Joe Rogan and they don't get the right stuff. Okay, come listen to Twib. <laughs> there <it is. laughs> oh, there no. goes the gauntlet, Devin. You've oh, got to no. get Vincent on oh, Joe Rogan God. now. This is your quest. Do you accept? How am I supposed to do oh, that, this, dude? Let me just call I'm very up. excited about this MMR me because Joe, MMR, man. Yeah. A lot of people get it, um, and um, <laughs> the numbers look great. The paper where we did it a couple of weeks ago on TWIV, I would take MMR vaccine. Go to your doctor and say, I want MMR. They'll go, really? Sure, here, have it. No downside. I just want to I'd... clarify what you just said, that you can get an MMR booster shot, and you, you the, like one of the leading virologists in the world, are relatively confident that that prevents serious complications with COVID-19. That's what you just said. <laughs> The data look good, and no, there are no downs, okay? It's like vitamin D. As long as you don't exceed the dose, there are no downsides. So that's what I'm looking for, something that's pretty harmless. You get boosted to MMR, and you may get protection to, to SARS-CoV-2. Wow. So that's actually going to go on my to-do list for, for real uh, yeah, right same. away. Yeah. But uh, when we were asking you earlier, Vincent, about what could we do to, like, protect ourselves, man, that – that would have been good. That's the up. category of answer he, he we're looking at. Like, the like hell with vitamin D. Yeah, that would have been that, 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 like he just like 
like you might as well have been like, yeah. By the way, if you put on this hat, it shows that like it just prevents COVID nineteen entirely. Uh, the, Brazil, <laughs> uh, the Brazilian re reminded me, thanks to the guy Jesus. in Brazil, because I, I yeah. So vitamin D and, and MMR vaccines, those two things, those are no brainers. Harmless, of course. Vitamin D, you don't want to overdose because yeah. that's bad. Yeah. But yeah. Take the the amount that's recommended. MMR vaccine, you know, one boost could protect you for years. So um, no downside to that either. Absolutely no downside. So wow. If you've already, okay. If you've already had an MMR vaccine, getting a boost like that, there's no there's no complications to get another one. Is what you're no. saying? No. Okay. There's no complications, and I tell you the the data are amazing. Um, do I have this slide here? Let me see if I can pull it up quickly because the data are gonna just blow you away. Uh, let me go back to. Uh, in the meantime, you can ask me another question if you'd like. But I, I gotta show this to you. Uh, I think we're both I'm... focused on this one. Yeah. The, so MMR, MMR vaccine, what does that stand for? That's the measles. Measles, mumps, rubella. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it's the mumps part uh, that is the part that's uh, protective. Here you go. It was in MBio. And um, this is the slide. I'm going to, can I share my Yeah, uh, please go right ahead. It worked great last time. God, that is nuts, man. That, that another vaccine right, has crossed. Can you, uh, Sorry, can you enable? Uh... Oh, I need to enable screen sharing. Sorry. Yes. I have to remind myself oh my how to God. do that. I'm sharing. Yeah, people this. can see it. <clears throat> All right. So this is a figure from the paper. This is mumps titer. So this means antibodies to mumps virus that you get from the vaccine versus COVID severity. This is only 50 people. But look at this. Uh, this is the titer here, and these are this, the difference. And this is people who are basically immune. They never get sick. They have the highest titers of mumps antibodies. Then people who are asymptomatic, some some low symptom score, they have lower titers. As the titers go down, mild disease, moderate COVID, and severe COVID, they have the lowest uh, levels of mumps antibodies. That's ins This is insane. Wow. Yeah, this, this, this is now, like- listen, This is a correlation, right? It is not causation. Causality, yeah. It hasn't been but tested. This is so easy for you to get an MMR vaccine. And it's no, there's no downside to this. There's no negative to getting this. this so the MMR vaccine, just say quickly how old it is, how well tolerated it is, because it's another vaccine. So if I don't want a vaccine, I don't want this one either, logically. But maybe you can say oh, yeah. a few. I mean, that's fine. I mean, MMR was developed in the 60s. It's been given you know, to hundreds of millions of people globally. It protects against infection with these three viruses. You get it as a kid. And here's the thing. Uh, you know, As you age, your titers go down. And as you age, you get more severe COVID. So, you know, if you're in your 60s, get an MMR shot or even lower. But uh, I, it's not proven. I totally agree. It's not proven. But I would do this. And I think there's no downside to getting an MMR uh, vaccine. No, I mean, I've already had it, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have. be worried about have. Yeah. If you've already had but, it, do you, should you get another one? Oh, it doesn't hurt because well, the I mean, I had it over time, you know, right? as a kid or whatever, right? So you can yeah. get a booster. I mean, Devin, mm. you're 65. You can get one, right? 54. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was born in 65. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so mm. that is very cool, I think. Better than the, uh, the BCG because the BCG is just a couple of months, uh, apparently. After you get that vaccine, it wanes in a few months. But this seems to last many years. Wow. That's All right. Unreal, man. That's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. That's nuts.
So yeah, and, and like to have uh, listeners asking questions, they always prod you, you know, to to dig into your. Head. I agree. That's that my whole show when I am not doing this with you is listener questions usually, and that's why. Yeah, <laughs> I love uh, listener questions. We do that on the podcast all the time. They just come up with the best stuff for sure. Yeah. So yeah, well, that was man. I feel like I this show just paid for itself completely <laughs> right there. <laughs> Yeah, and now we're going to have a, a run on MMI. Yeah, look, luckily there's 10,000 people, uh, about 11,000 people listening. That won't crush the supply of MMR vaccine. No, no, there's mm -hmm. plenty of doses, yeah. Uh, doses. So what else, uh, Devin, I've covered a lot, um, and we've covered some listener questions. What else do you have? Chat, go. Um, my, uh, well, man, a lot of my questions were around, um, the two main questions that I brought in were, long haul long haul and also what can we do for prevention um, well those we've nailed them yeah and we've we've covered those let me check our i, I have one then i'll buy you some time yeah uh vincent what happens if i only get one of the shots so i go get a shot for whatever reason i don't get the other so the, the um i think the pfizer study they looked at efficacy after the first shot and there is some protection but it's not as good. It's not at 94%. It's not as good as after two. So you will get some, um, if you, you know, if you can't get the second shot for whatever reason, and a lot of people can't get both. So, uh, you are partially protected, I would say, but I would, you know, really strongly suggest you get both. So of course, okay. I yeah, have I, tons of I'm in violent agreement. I'm just, <clears throat> so uh, not surprisingly, you know, uh, half the shots, maybe not exactly half the protection, but some portion. So yeah. Yeah. What um what kind of quality assurance is being done on the vaccines that are coming out? Particularly one that's interesting is that they're because they're being stored at low temperatures, what happens if one heats up, destabilizes, gets injected into a human? How likely is yeah. that, do you think? Yeah. Um what what's the I, I think how likely are we to run into problems with distribution when we're trying to do something with a new vaccine at a logistical level that we've never done before? I, I'm concerned for yeah. sure. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, outside the U.S., you know, a lot of countries that are, will not be able to deal with this Pfizer vaccine. Mm -hmm. They don't have dry ice. They don't have cold freezers. It's a real problem. But here, I think in general we're okay. But still, there will be places where, uh, you know, it goes to a, right now. It, it's going to institutions, right? mainly hospitals and nursing homes where they know how to take care of, of pharmaceuticals and they know the importance of keeping them at the right temperature. But, you know, in, in six months when it goes to a doctor's office, they may, you know, keep it a little bit longer. And yeah, it could be a problem for you. Um, and, and your antibody titer won't be as good if you get a less potent vaccine because it hasn't been refrigerated. That's a problem with any vaccine. We know that it can compromise uh, immunity. But, uh, you know, the the only thing you can do is if you're getting in your doctor's office, you know, you can ask them, how long has this been? Oh, I just took it out of the freezer this morning. You know, you can be proactive and try and find out. I don't think it's an issue now because, as I said, these things are being thawed and injected right away. Nothing's being stored in the in the freezer for long periods. And there are a lot of people working. Uh, you can read about this. There are a lot of people working on the distribution chain, trying to make sure it stays intact. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, it, it is really for those math geeks who want to go through it. It's a really tough question of how do I 
I want to immunize in the U.S., forgetting worldwide for a moment, and we want to immunize the world. 300 million people, they need two shots each, each, so it's 600 million people. You need someone who can inject all of those. If you actually back into the logistics, I back of the envelope it today, and, and you need 10,000 people injecting full-time, 40 hours a week for uh, a year. Like you need 10,000 <laughs> to, to get through everyone. That's that's yeah. kind of the raw yeah. math of what it takes. And I've assumed in that five minutes per patient to fill out the paperwork and give the shot. Obviously, some will be faster, some, you know, but like the point is that's that's totally doable. There are more than 10,000 nurses there, but uh, all those people also have jobs today. So yeah, we're sure. gonna be busy. It's a logistical challenge. I mean, I am not worried about thawed, a thawed vial of vaccine being at the fridge too long. I'm worried that the dry ice in the container is going to go out and then people don't have access to dry ice. That's a, mm. more of an issue. But, uh, you know, in these next weeks, that's not going to be a problem. It will be a problem in the in the months the next year after February, say, when there's a lot, lot more vaccine around then. I think it could be an issue. Well, I guess like I'm more worried about like you've got a truck full that dry ice failed. Human beings make mistakes. What, what I guess sure. what happens when a vaccine destabilizes? It's just ineffective. Well, if it's this mRNA vaccine, it breaks up, and so yeah. now it's no longer going to give you an immune response, right? So, so you would you would just be injected with something that like a placebo it doesn't work, but you yeah, wouldn't know exactly. It. Exactly. Now, I don't know if they're building in you know, th sensors into the boxes that say, oh, this box has been at room temp for too long. They could do that, obviously, right? Yeah. They put they put water sensors in your phone so they know when you've got water in them, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they could do that. So I, I, I don't know if that's been done. It may be. But yeah, I agree. It's an issue. I worry about the cold chain for sure. Couple um, of, uh... you know, so someday we're not going to need a cold chain for vaccines. We're going to have stabilized vaccines that don't need it, but we're not there yet. Couple. And I'm curious about that. Yeah. What do you see next in the evolution of these vaccines? In other words, how long will it be till there's a V2? Um, yeah. When, um, when do we get the the room temperature stable, better versions, or or? So there are two things: there the the temperature and the d delivery. We have to change both of them. We have to be able to do room temp for long periods of time and even high temperatures, and we have to get rid of the needles. Needles are just crazy. You know, all the needles that we need. You uh, need a, a trained person to give you a shot, and they're all going to go. Uh, five to 10 years. We can, right now, already, we put sugar into the vaccine to stabilize it, and it becomes thermostable for many, many days at very hot temperatures, almost 98 degrees temperatures. And that's being tested in various trials with different vaccines. Eventually, it'll come to this one, too. And the needles is a very cool uh, technology called the uh, a microneedle patch. If you just Google microneedle patch, you'll f see these little squares. They're about a centimeter square with tiny, tiny plastic needles. Uh, the vaccine is saturated into this, then it's put on your skin with a Band-Aid, and the vaccine is delivered to your skin, which is a really good place That's to put insane. a vaccine. Lots of immune cells there, and then uh, you get a great immune uh, response, and you can put it on with a Band-Aid. You don't need a syringe. Those are all going to happen within five years oh or so. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. That's like some science fiction stuff. And I think that getting rid of needles is good because a lot of parents don't like to stick, have their kids stuck with needles, and yeah. it probably... We, kids we, don't like it either. Yeah, kids don't like it either, right.
Um, <laughs> so one question we didn't get to is mutations. Yeah, uh, so we're else. doing all this great work. We're getting a vaccine. There's some uh, talk about the virus is pretty well known or thought to have jumped to mm -hmm. mink, the, the fur bearing animal, maybe some other right. things. Right. right. Uh, is this all sound and fury signifying nothing because we're going to get this back from minks or dogs or cats or rats or bats and it's going to be different. And so right. COVID-21 is coming next year. I, I'm worried about this. Uh, yes, oh, it is shit. a possibility. <laughs> oh, we got the to sit right back up. I, I, just thought, I just thought he wasn't worried about it because the last time we talked about him, he wasn't, but now he is. Okay. Oh, we know a lot more. We've uh, seen this virus go into many animals. Um, it's going to go into wild mice, I'm quite sure, uh, and a mink. Uh, but there is a solution. I don't know if it would change and then be a problem in people, right? Kill all it's the a, humans. It's a possibility. Mm -hmm. We can't kill all the animals, but we can immunize a lot of them. People oh. who grow mink, just immunize your bloody mink. You could make a mink vaccine in two months. Easy. I'm sure people are doing it. We immunize Less fish. safety concerns. We, we immunize all kinds of uh, animals. We can immunize mink. We can immunize the people who work with them. So any farmed animal that's susceptible taken care of immunize it no problem we do that with pigs and chickens and fish already isn't that a problem uh, though like if you've got a random bat in china that flaps into a market and then dies and then gets eaten and that's isn't that what caused COVID 19 in the first place well I mean, it came it from bats yeah, yeah so, for so, sure yeah but we can't get rid of all someone said why don't we kill all the bats you can't they're 20 of mammals you're never going to be able to do that mm -hmm. and it would have an impact on the ecosystem you know it would screw things up because they are important uh, parts of the ecosystem yeah, if so we go exterminate all the bats. But, um, <clears throat> all right, so the solution to that is to be ready with antivirals and vaccines that right. would protect us mm -hmm. against a lot of coronaviruses, which we can do. We could have had, and I think I talked about this last time, we didn't have them. Um, it should have been easy. Piece of cake to have an antiviral when this thing came out of China would have been the end of it back in December. Wow. But as far as wild animals go, you can even immunize wild animals. Did you know we immunize... Uh, wild animals f for rabies. We take yeah, yeah. rabies vaccine, we put it in bait, and we drop it from helicopters into the woods, and it really suppresses rabies circulation in mm -hmm. wild animals. So you can do that as well. There are lots of solutions. It's just a matter of wanting to do it. And the problem is, when there's no pandemic, people don't get interested in this stuff anymore. And, you know, interest wanes. And then we get stuck when the next one comes along. I'm hoping this will change it, but I'm not sure if that'll happen. Well, I think it will, for some amount of time, interest is going to be pretty strong. There's going to be some inertia. Um, but can you characterize, I, I'm sure, wow, this is a hard question. What can you say you're worried about crossover of a new mutation? Do you want to handicap that in any way? Like, obviously, you think it could happen. Do you think it's likely or... When yeah. viruses go to a new host, they change. It's a brand new environment, right? So we saw in Denmark, the viruses that went into mink, they changed, and it affected their ability to be blocked by human antibodies, right? Fortunately, that lineage seems to have gone away, so it's not a threat, but that could happen again, or it could happen somewhere else. And I don't know how likely it is. It's theoretically possible. We should just be ready for it. We should have good biosecurity on all farms so that infected people don't go in and take care of animals. That's crazy. Uh, everyone should be tested routinely 
you should be vaccinated. There should be enough biosecurity so that you do not infect your animals and have them infect you. That can be done. We know on pig farms, for example, very high biosecurity in many countries. You can't go visit a pig farm. They're inside and they can't have contact with people. Interesting. Huh. And you can make vaccines, as I said. Yeah. If you want to keep your mink industry, just make a vaccine. It's not hard to do. You could so, make an mRNA vaccine if you wanted to, right? <laughs> so, Vincent, uh, you talked a little about being unprepared and funding. Right. Has the pandemic, at least for the short term, changed the more general disease and research investment level? In other words, all of the <clears throat> countries of the world have been punched in the gut by lockdowns and trillions of dollars of expense. Mm -hmm. Have you seen, as as a virologist, any change in investment more broad than just COVID, COVID, COVID? Um, well, this, this can happen at two levels. This can happen in the private sector and in government, right? Uh huh. So, the NIH has gotten a, got a two billion dollar infusion of cash earlier this year for, for COVID related stuff. The bulk of that is going for clinical trials, right? They're paying for a lot of it. They're very expensive. Very little is filtering down to basic research, like finding antivirals to block the next generation of uh, coronaviruses from bats. What, wasn't there a, a specific stimulus from the U.S. government to uh, to fight? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's what I'm talking about it was like two billion or something. No, but like I'm that. talking about. I, I believe it was an 800 million dollar research grant, um, only for them to figure out how to fix 400 million or 800 million. Big difference. Is that? It's not a lot of money, but uh, I don't see a broad effect of it. I mean, we okay. wrote a mm -hmm. COVID proposal and got a great score, and they said, we don't know if we can give you the money because we got to make sure the clinical trials get done first, right? So that's my experience. It's not that's annoying. a windfall. <laughs> it's not a windfall. You know, the NIH budget is $37 billion, and that has to go for all health-related stuff, not just infectious diseases, right? And so it's not a lot of money. And if we had more, we could be better prepared. So for after this all of this, they're still not approving your research grants to no, try to figure they, out better solutions for this. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough money. And then the private sector, you know, the problem is a company won't make an antiviral if there's no virus around, right? But that could change. We now have a couple of nonprofits. Uh, there are two of them. One is called CEPI, C-E-P-I. Mm -hmm. Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative, and the other is Ready R E A D D I, which is, they're both nonprofits. They raise money, and Sepi uh, makes vaccines, and Ready makes antivirals for viruses that companies will not touch, mm -hmm. and get them maybe to a phase one where they could be ready for rapid deployment uh, during an outbreak. And maybe that's the model we need going forward because you know companies are based on profit, and you can't make a profit on a virus that's not here yet. And that's the problem. Wow, man. So even though we've lost trillions of dollars, are, like as a result of a global economic collapse, yep. you're still not confident that we're going to no. that we're going to. No. Yeah. That from a research perspective, uh, yeah. we're going to improve. And a yeah. fraction of that, a fraction of those trillions, we could have prevented this pandemic. Less than a billion dollars. We did a paper last week on an antiviral that beautifully inhibits SARS-CoV-2 transmission in ferrets, right? Mm -hmm. This antiviral has been around for five years. It was just never developed because nobody wanted to invest in it. 
it infect it affects a lot of RNA viruses. It could have been ready to go in China. I'm telling you, if we had this antiviral, you could treat the initial patients. You would have stopped the spread of this virus. Oh so, my God! And so contained it like SARS one or yep. something else. Would have been over. Would have been That's over. So frustrating. So so this entire pandemic is a result of underfunding research. We already had the solutions. Yep. Everybody should be really pissed. Well, I, I'm I, trying so, to get more and more. I'm so, very mad. <laughs> Devin, you like my book recommendations. Uh, you like the book Decisive. Very quickly, those same authors have a book called Upstream. Yeah. And it's all about how hard it is to get funding for prevention versus treatment. I Not just, just in medicine, but in so dude, many places. That sucks so bad because I pay so much in taxes. To, to one of the most advanced countries in the world. And we just don't solve these problems that we can solve. It'd be one thing if it was like, wow, it's theoretical. But it's like, if we have an antiviral that could just it's, put a stop to the thing, where was the yeah, World Health Organization? Where was so the you NIH? and I can Where was the... You and I can do another show on this because I'm with you. The, the problem is if you prevent a pandemic, like nothing happened and it's hard to show. Like, no one, if... if, if and his peers had this thing and we had given it to a few people in China, it would have been a one day news story and you'd have never, you can't prove I, pre I prevented a trillion dollar or many trillion dollar global pandemic because they're like, oh, it probably wasn't that bad anyway. It probably just would have been those seven people in the Wuhan market. That That's the, the right, mental we fallacy. The, now we had it. Now we had the trillion dollar pandemic. And so still not going forward, going yeah, forward. We have the example yeah. now. Yeah. Um, but that's, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Yeah, I but hope we get a been, little smarter. Look how unconfident he sounds I, in his faith in humanity. He's, he, that's why he's got pictures of viruses back there and not the pictures yeah. of humans, because he's, lo he's lost yeah, faith in right. humanity. It's only, it's, I do it to a certain extent. I have, you know. Um, <laughs> I thought I was joking, but you're serious. <laughs> oh, science could have taken care of this. I, yeah. I'm totally convinced, and many of my colleagues are, many of my coronavirus colleagues are, this could have been prevented. We just, uh, we've done multiple podcasts on this, right? Yeah. And, and uh, it's quite clear this could have been prevented with the right investment. And, you know, just simply doing wildlife surveys in China and other countries where there are bats that have coronaviruses yeah. in them, you can't get funded to do that. And that's what you need to get these viruses and say, well, what do we need to inhibit them? It's totally doable, folks. You should be outraged. All of you should be outraged that your lives have been <laughs> screwed up because of a lack of foresight. Yeah. Well, you are on you are That's on the I, right site for outrage. Twitch has many talents, and one of them is outrage. Yeah. So you're tapping into the right vein here. Uh, yeah, it's it feels like so 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 outraged at whom exactly? Because is it is it governments that should do this? Is this some kind of organization, like a World Health Organization? So, is it like what, uh, who, it is. Yeah. So I can't. I, I mean, you have to be outraged at the pharmaceutical companies because they didn't invest, but that's yeah. not their model, right? It's really not their thing to do. So really the NIH should have supported this, but they don't have enough of a budget. And this is risky it's, it's, work. Yeah. So I mean, Politicians have to fund science rather than other things they fund. Uh, and, and, and the science funding has gotten very politicized in the last 20 years. And you can't do things unless you're curing a disease nowadays. And if there's no disease to cure, it's very hard to get support. I want to make an antiviral for a virus that might be here in 10 years. It's very difficult. Yeah, but, but I hope that it changes. I just don't have a lot of faith, okay? And um, 
it just it's just frustrating as hell that we didn't have to go through any of this, man. Vincent, I'm worried you're gonna create the super virus, man. If you're losing faith in oh, humanity, no, I don't. I, I don't do that, but uh, <laughs> I motivate people. You can still believe there's good people out there. Don't give up, okay? Don't, Vincent doesn't. There are there are good people out there. Yeah, I don't mean don't to become, say everyone. Don't become is. a mad scientist. Fact, you know he the, does. the bad ones. Give, give humanity a bad name, but most of us are okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ben, Vincent doesn't do a very good job of looking like a mad scientist, which does mean that if he chooses to invent Skippy the super virus and turn it loose, no one will suspect. Him. Yeah. We're literally talking to one of the most dangerous people on earth. Oh, I have many <laughs> ideas for making cool viruses. I wouldn't do any of them, frankly. <laughs> I, have, I have worked on viruses for over 40 years. I know, I know my way around viruses. Uh, and I've done things that can enable, I mean, the ability to manipulate viruses is actually resulting from my work uh, 30 years ago. So uh, I, I know how to do this, but I would never do that. I, as I said, I want to help people and uh, make them healthy and teach them. So. Cool. You know, I, I really like you as a person and I oh, always have. And coming. if, uh, and you know, just keep that in mind, if, uh, if you ever do decide to, to, to destroy humanity, no, um, I would never do that. Never. <laughs> please, and Devin is asking that you please encode special resistance yes, yeah. for all for people him. with the surname Nash, mm -hmm. as long as you can design. I would yeah. never, ever harm no, I know. other yeah. people. We're just messing around. Yeah, absolutely not. You're a good dude. I just want to help people. What do you, no. what do you think of the, uh, the Oxford vaccine? A lot of people are asking about it. So the, uh, oh yeah, we should have talked about some of the other vaccines. The Oxford <laughs> is a different, totally different kind of vaccine. Uh, it is using a different virus to carry the gene for the spike protein, right? It's an adenovirus, uh, which are big DNA viruses. And this one it happens to be a, an adenovirus from a chimpanzee. And the reason they use that is because humans are not going to be infected with it. So they won't have immunity, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to in inject this into people and have your immune system not shut it down before it can make spike uh, mRNA. Um, so the problem with that, that is that they screwed up in, in some of the first doses in some of the people and gave them only a half a dose, right? It was a, it was a formulation problem. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it worked better when they gave half of a first dose followed by a full booster. And my, my interpretation is that when you give half of a first dose, you don't make as strong an immune response against the vector because they're using the same adenovirus for the prime and the boost. And you get then on the boost, you get a nice response against the spike. The better strategy would be to use two different adenoviruses, right? And for each one, as we were saying earlier, use a different virus for the prime and the boost. That they're not doing that, so I think that's problematic. I'm not sure what the final recommendation is going to be: half dose and a full dose, or full full. The full full only gave uh, seventy or sixty some protect percent protection, or seventy percent mm. protection. No, that was the average, so it was sixty some percent. Um, the Russian vaccine is a two adenovirus vaccine. The first one is different from the second one. And that makes a lot of sense to me because when you want to use a vector that is a different virus to deliver your gene, I think you should make them different in the prime boost or else only require one shot in all. So I think the uh, uh, Oxford vaccine will be okay in the long run um, once they figure out the dose. I, do, and there are a couple of other vaccines that are following that are similar to that one. That was well. my follow-up question is, do you see any vaccines that could be more promising than our mRNA vaccine at the moment? 
No, I think that this this one is great. And oh, okay. uh, adenovirus mm -hmm. could be good, but I don't think it's going to be better than the uh, mRNA vaccine. Then there's another category of vaccines that are being developed. Uh, and there are a couple here in the U.S. that are just pure protein, right? You make the protein in the lab, you purify it, and then you inject it into people. And we don't have efficacy data on those yet. Apparently, there's a company in India that's making a billion doses of that. Why? Because a lot of people. No, but why, a why make a billion doses if you don't understand the efficacy yet? They're taking a risk. Okay, good answer. They're that, taking a risk. Also a spooky answer, but okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. like the protein-based vaccines. I've seen some data which suggests that they don't give as good memory as as these other vaccines. So right now, I'm really high on the mRNA vaccines. I'm sure the the adenovirus vaccines can be good too, but we just don't have the data yet. So Vincent, the gentleman who introduced us, Simon from Singapore is on, and he's asking about the Imperial College vaccine. Are you familiar with that? That sounds like some Warhammer vaccine <laughs> or so, yeah. Like, that's awesome. Uh, what is the <laughs> what is the platform of the uh, let me see if i can <clears throat> okay here it is the emperor's oh, vaccine yeah you want to know if it's mrna or if it you want to know whether it's he says it's well uh, i know the, the, the imperial college is involved in testing the oxford vaccine i don't know that mm -hmm. they have one of their own okay well he's listening so as soon as it loops through and he hears your comment he'll reply back we give him the chance because for everyone who's watching, uh, I was lucky enough to be introduced by one of my uh, channel regulars who's here in chat, Ligerbox, uh, who introduced Devin and I uh, to Dr. Rack and Yellow and allowed us to get all this great information. So since we're winding up and we've asked most of our questions and Devin's yawning big, no, I have uh, <laughs> uh, he's, he calls I this um, yeah. Robin Shattuck's vaccine. I have more. Oh, it's, how he, it's the same as the it's the Oxford vaccine. It's yeah, the Oxford vaccine. Okay, so, okay. so yeah. that's the one you just spoke about. Great. Yeah. So they're doing some of the clinical trials for the Oxford vaccine at ICRF Imperial College. Yeah. Same vaccine. Uh, so we have a bunch of adenovirus vaccines coming up. We have protein vaccines in China. They have an inactivated virus vaccine mm -hmm. where they grow a lot of it. They inactivated it like the polio vaccine by Jonas Salk, and that's being used there. Uh, and there's some infectious vaccines that are being developed, but those are further down the pipe. What we're going to see in the U.S. are mRNA vaccines, adenovirus vaccines, and pure protein vaccines. That's going to be our palette, our smorgasbord of COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. So we're going to have a huge, um, the timing is uncertain. But your point is, the great thing is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are just uh, shots one and two at the target. We have and they seem to be great, but we have so many more producers more, coming online. Yeah. And we need that because we need, you know, hundreds of millions of doses from each company. And then we can cover not just the U.S., but many other countries. Because remember, not every country can make its own vaccine. We have to help them out. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Devin, I don't know if you have more I you do. want to ask. Yeah. I'll just say, uh, Vincent, uh, literally, my wife has found a Rite Aid nearby where we can go get an MMR booster after Wonderful. we finish talking. All you right. fully endorse that. You yeah. think that's yeah, a fine idea. It's totally safe, and there's no downside, and it can only help. Yeah, do that. Yeah, that's incredible. I do I, have more questions. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
Uh, as long, I mean, we have kept Vincent two and a half hours. These are pretty so pretty rapid fire. Yeah. Um, one quick question is how long will it take for the shot to be effective after getting it? Uh, so, so if, if I receive the vaccine, um, at what point would I be protected against COVID beyond like, at what point would I be up to yeah. the end? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Seven to four, seven to 14 days. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and is that, and that's after the second booster shot. That's right. Okay. Um, second question, uh, in the original talks we did, there was some evidence that sunlight and heat uh affect covid negatively uh they, they kill covid and now we are using uv rays um and filters on subway systems and mm -hmm. showing that we can dramatically reduce covid any commentary on that yeah so we had a guy on who talked about far uvc light yeah, right which is about. really uh, really inactivates the virus and it's not harmful to to humans for short periods of time. So you can disinfect areas like subway stations and so forth, subway cars, you can turn it on at night. So that's being deployed more widely. And filters, HEPA filters, filters are yeah. being used uh, as well in, in many institutions. We've learned that air, air circulation is better. Uh, you know, if I learned today in your car, if you have a couple of people, keep the windows open. That really makes a, a current of air that'll uh, prevent the virus from sitting around inside the car. So quite interesting, yeah. But we're learning about all these uh, mitigations, right? So, so you just said that um, better airflow um, reduces viral transmission pretty reliably. Yeah, because yeah. if the air is static, then your breath is going to hang around mm -hmm. near you for a while. And if other people are near you, they're going to inhale it. Whereas if you have good circulating air, it's going to move it away from you and other people quickly. And that's why airplanes are pretty safe now, because yeah. they have top to bottom air circulation, not lateral. Oh. Right, so it doesn't spread throughout the cabin, and it's filtered on top. Are of you that fairly and... confident flying at this point? If you wear a, a heavy-duty mask, and it's a good question. I'm getting yeah. on a plane in a few days, so Rip. I'd love to know. I think if you wear a mask, so the the Department of Defense did a study in, in August where they put dummies on planes and they made aerosols and did all sorts of experiments with virus, and they said. The top-to-down circulation in a plane makes it a very safe place to be as long as you're wearing a mask. So I think you can you can fly, wear a mask the whole time, and you know, I, I I'm convinced by that. The filtration and the airflow is uh, is really helped there. What about the airports before getting on a plane? Yeah, that's dicey, right? Yeah. Because there mm -hmm. you have a lot of people milling around, and so um, and less airflow, particularly spend, spend less time spend less time in the airport, right? Yeah, so if you're actually on the plane itself, it's well controlled. But airport, yeah, the plane right. itself is very safe, apparently, yeah. according to this DoD study. Now I haven't seen it, but um, I've read summaries of it. That's really it interesting. Pretty good. Um, and what about sunlight and heat? Any updates on that? So there's no question that sunlight and um, low humidity, high humidity, decrease transmission. Mm -hmm. The sunlight inactivates the virus. The high humidity makes the droplets that you expel fall to the ground quicker. And, you know, for a brief time, we had lower transmission uh, in the early summer uh, until everyone started partying and so forth. Yeah. Um, and likewise, in the winter, we get more transmission because it's colder and uh, less humid and the drops remain suspended longer. And so that's in part why we're seeing this huge jump uh, in the fall, which will continue through uh, the early months of next year. Okay. Um, my final question is kind of a, a like a closing question. 
I don't know, Ethan. If we, I'm like, good. Uh, we've okay. we've kept Vincent generously with his yeah. time. I love you know give him a break. It's East Coast and getting late. So yeah, have at it. Okay, I I I think um that question would be what lessons have we learned from this pandemic? What what are you confident in going forward? Uh, I know we kind of heard the the sort of less optimistic side of it. Um, but but so, have so we learned something? Yeah, we yeah. we've made vaccines quickly. We've learned yeah. that. We have learned that. Um, many of the antivirals that we tried to repurpose, the already licensed for other things, didn't work. We have learned you cannot give a, a patient an antiviral when they're already in the hospital. When you're sick, when you can't breathe and you go to the hospital, by then you don't have a virus problem anymore. Mm. You have an immune response problem. And giving people antivirals and even monoclonal antibodies at that point is useless. Now, the problem is that most of the ones we have, so there's remdesivir, a yeah. drug and monoclonal antibodies by Lilly and Regeneron, they have to be given intravenously. And so that's why they were given to patients in the hospital, but it doesn't work there. So now we have learned to test at-risk people, and as soon as they're positive, send them to an infusion center where they can get infusions of monoclonal mm -hmm. antibodies. Mm -hmm. We've learned that dis distancing and masking in these interventions do work to cut down uh, transmission, but... Um, I think the biggest thing is that we can make a vaccine that prevents it. And that's really important. Excellent answer. All right. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for your generous use of time. Uh, we got to reach uh, tens of thousands of people over the course of the last two hours, both, uh, I assume Devin, but I, I'm sure I will both get this edited and out yeah. on YouTube. Our videos will reach tens of thousands more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, where it'll reach tons more people. We'll do that right away. Um, and so as soon as I go get my MMR booster, I will get to work on getting this up on YouTube. And we, you offered to come back further back in, in the pandemic. Yep. Uh, we'd, we'd love to have you back in a few months when there's more data and when the vaccine becomes accessible yep. more to people who have the choice to use it or not, as, as opposed to right now, right. you know, it's, you it's people choice, who yeah. really need it. And I would assume their workplaces are going to require them to take it. Yeah, so, right. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it would be my pleasure to come back. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we'll wish you a good night. Uh, this you. has been uh, Dr. Vincent Racaniello from Columbia University uh, in New York. He's been our guest several times, and he's so knowledgeable. It's amazing. So. Uh, uh, Vincent, where can people find you? Well, you can find me uh, on YouTube. My my uh, nickname is P-R-O-F-V-R-R -R, or on um, microbe.tv. You'll find all my podcasts. That's my own website, microbe.tv. And This Week in Virology is the name of the podcast. Check it out. You'll, you'll like it. If you liked what you heard tonight, you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, you guys. Take care. Stay service. safe. All right. All right. We'll try. Bye. Good night.